This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Siberia Bar and Hotel on Bellman Street, Aberdeen. Located only 30 seconds walk away from the nearest bus stop, taking supporters to Pataudry for free on match days. Siberia Bar and Hotel is open seven days a week, all year round, and get fired in with our exclusive discounts. Head to the bar and quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pound of Foster's, a £4 for a pint of Moretti or Dark Fruits, or £5 for a pint of Fierce or a Daiquiri any day of the week, including match days. Come on, you Reds. Red slight of foot there. It's Tuesday and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 100 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott and as always I'm joined by Gavin J. Baxter and Graham Steele. Gents, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Very satisfied. The century is up. Waving the bat to the pavilion. We've done it. And uh, what a way to mark the 100 episode. Indeed, of all the weeks to do it in, the Dons 5,000th game, a memorable one for all of the right reasons at last, and also in a week that saw heartbreak for Graham's other team, as Bucky Thistle bucked it against Brecon City, that sees the Hedgemen take the Highland League title. They saw ex-Dons captain and friend of the show, Darren Young, lead his Sterling Albion side to League Two title glory. And they saw Hibs fans embark on the reverse ferrets of all reverse ferrets in the aftermath of the Jago sending off at McDermott Park. And that saw Liam Scales transform into prime Ronaldinho. It is another busy one this week, as we do ring in the maiden century here on the ABZFP, and we'll bring you our review of Sunday afternoons, 2-0 win over Sefco 5088 Limited Trading as the Rangers. We'll check in with the young team and our lone players in Lone Watch. And after the break, to mark the occasion of our 100th episode, we'll bring you part one of our interview with a local loon who went on to make over 400 appearances in red over two spells, captaining the club twice. And he was, of course, the last Aberdeen captain to lift a major trophy. It is the one and the only Captain Fantastic, Russell Anderson. But first, will we crack open the beers here for this one, boys, before we go to this one? This is weird, isn't it? Doing wins all the time. Oh, the beers have been cracked open many hours ago. And I have indeed been. That's a, a little hair of the dog almost. Is this what it's like to be like a Celtic state of mind or something? I don't ever want people thinking I'm anything like Celtic. <laughs> I certainly don't ever want to share the state of mind of the average Celtic fan. No, no, absolutely. I just meant more in terms of, you know, reviewing wins week in, week out. I mean... Anyway, let's get it's on. Un, it's unusual. I'm looking at the table on the BBC website at the forum. It just says five green W's against Aberdeen. Yeah, they should extend it to seven, I think, at the moment. It's just <laughs> the box list. isn't big enough for all the wins for the for the first time in a long time. Well, of course, given the um, given the result at Celtic Park, yes, it does mean the Dons are indeed the forum team in the country. But never mind, let's get on it. So, Aberdeen, our five... Thousandth game, because that is what happens when you remain the same club for your entirety of your existence. And after a week of back and forth with the Strathclyde Football Association, Graham Shinney missing out as he starts his four-match ban 
with Ilma Ravadani coming back into the side after illness. Otherwise, unchanged, with the exception of Jay Horter regaining his place on the bench in place of Joe Lewis and Connor Barron replacing Jaden Richardson. A scrappy opening 10 minutes in this one before Clarkson had to produce a marvellous header to clear on the line from Amarelos, from Amarelos volley before Roos had to make a crucial stop when left one-on-one with Sakala. Before Pollock had to receive treatment for a bloody nose after colliding with uh, Angus McDonald as the Dons. Backline in defence, let's just say we struggled a little bit to deal with the movement from, from the Rangers front four in the opening 15-20 minutes. Barisic hitting the post then before Raskin brought out a block from Pollock as the wayside that looked the more likely to score before Ramadani brought out a save from McGregor before Duncan then also pulled a shot wide of goal just on halftime. Halftime, 0-0. It's second half, the Dons taking a huge lead through Liam Scales as he nipped in front of Morelos to win the ball just inside the Rangers' half before lashing a ball towards goal, which fell, flew in over the top of a helpless grandpa, Alan McGregor, as he did his best David Seaman at the 2002 World Cup impression. And the Dons had lift off. It was two, just eight minutes later, Clarkson joining in an attack late and his delightful ball found Miofsky, who timed his run to perfection to evade Barisic and his diving header back across McGregor sent the old lady into further raptures. Hayes, with a massive shout for a penalty, turned away before the Dons then rearguard stepped into head, kick and clear everything thrown at them. Huge save from Kelroos to deny Tavernier at point-blank range, keeping the Dons ahead before Duke was replaced by Watkins. And as it turned out, the Dons ended up seeing this one out pretty comfortably in the end to open up the gap back to five points to third-placed Hearts. Nine points the gap now to Hibs and St Mirren. As we go into the split on the data front, possession 25%. To the good guys, 75% to the baddies. Shots 11 to 20. Shots on target 4 to 3 to Aberdeen. And expected goals 1.07 to the Dons to 1.77 to the visitors. So, before we get into the detail, gents, just your immediate reflections and reactions to another entertaining afternoon at the home of football. It's pretty sweet, wasn't it? <laughs> I uh, I enjoyed that. Didn't realise the possession was quite so bad. Though probably a lot of that damage was maybe done in the first half. We didn't really, we weren't really in the game a great deal. But no, overall, uh, really important points. Kind of you know, almost regardless who you're playing, you're at home game. You want the points. Business end of the season, we need them. But really pleased with. I don't think we gave the best account of ourselves from a footballing point of view but we're just so much better at digging in and not getting bullied and flustered the way we were even a few months ago and that's really satisfying a couple of things which I'm sure we'll go into even like the the goal you know Scales is right in on Morelos wants the ball more and then obviously not think he's going to go and do what he does but it's bits and pieces like that you know we were um, a lot more tenacious than we had been under the old regime and just really satisfying to not really be in the game that much in the first half, but to do more than just come through it and get something out of it, to actually go on, take the game to them, which is what we were hoping we would do and get your rewards for it. And before we get accused, Gav, just before you jump in, before we get accused of being the style police here about Barry Robson, um, because I think there was some people got their goats up last week because we dared Graham to question whether or not the style was the right manner for Barry Robson. I couldn't give a shit about the style tonight, and we're not going to talk about the style tonight. The win's the win. That's all that matters. Gavin. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, it was an important game for taking uh, out of consideration 
the opposition, given the results on Saturday, uh, with Hearts dishing out uh, absolute scudding to Malky Mackay's Ross County, which in itself left me with a lot of mixed feelings as well. Mm. It's kind of like, well, this is horrible to be watching as an Aberdeen fan. However, it's also kind of awesome. But given that happened, um, I thought it was very important that we maintain that five-point gap going into the split because it's going to be a tough, tough old five games. So to to get the win, uh, get that cushion back, very important. And then just, you know, obviously, it's, as I said on Sportsound, it's it's Rangers at home. It's one of those games you wait for. It's one of the games you look for when the fixtures are, are dropped uh, at the beginning of the season. We haven't beaten either of the old firm in, in far, far too long. Uh, come up close sometimes, but ultimately coming up short. I thought, to be quite honest with you, I thought we were very poor in the first half. And at halftime, I thought there was a, a depressing inevitability about the way that the game was going to go. And I don't think we even really completely started the second half all that well either. But then when Liam Scales pops up with um, a moment of, whether it was a intentional or unintentional, magic. Uh, oh, God, you're hard to please. It took all of three minutes for Liam Scales to score. What was in that opening three minutes you didn't like? Uh, well, we scored. We took only took 16 seconds at Kilmarnock, so I don't know what we're taking so long for. Um, and then that just even turned things around. And then from that point on, I didn't really think that we were... Obviously, Rangers had chances. There were still um, some neat link-up play in our in our area, but I just, you know, like Graham said, we're just a completely different animal. We're we're so resolute and prepared to defend our box with um, with everything we have, and yeah, uh, a deeply, deeply satisfying Sunday at Pottery. We'll crunch the numbers just here quickly. Um, I'll do it now while I can still read them. And um, seven wins on the spin. That means we're bearing now on the longest streak since the 2015-2016 season where we opened the campaign with eight wins. Five clean, sheet, five clean sheets in a row now. No other team in the Premiership has managed that this season. Um, the turnaround from that perspective is unbelievable as far as I'm concerned. Um, we've not done that as a club since December 2014 into January 2015 had five clean sheets on the bounce. We just touched on there. Our first win over them in the league at Pataudry since 2016. But putting all that to one side at the moment, I think, Gavin, you're absolutely right. The biggest part about today, irrespective of who it was we were playing, and obviously that does give us that added you know, sense of satisfaction, we keep the momentum going. We maybe just take a little bit of air out of that balloon that was maybe starting to pop up down Gorgie way after their win on Saturday. It's, I think it's big from a number of um, perspectives. You know, it's, If you look at the league table, We've now got 17 wins from 33 games, so we're in a positive from that perspective. We've managed to get the goal difference back on track after that disastrous, you know, 11-0 aggregate score in the in the final yep. two games of Jim Goodwin's league um, tenure. Obviously, we've been, you know, a pretty good team all all year as far as scoring goals, but yeah, the defense is just a completely different beast. And you know, it's it's now nine points. From from Hibbs and and St. Minnan. there's a cushion there as well, and like you say, it just it's it's the momentum, isn't it? Because that's so important when you're coming to the business end of the season. We're maybe not playing as well as you'd like. I still don't think that performance today was um, anywhere near the level that we put in against Hearts, Pataudry. But like Graham says, we're just we're finding ways to win games, and we're just we're that we're so much more difficult to beat. And I think this five point gap is going to be big because you can kind of play roughly predict how the results are going to go for everyone. And I think that could well be just um, maybe just a little bit too far for, for even hearts to overtake us and we'll get that coveted, coveted third place. Yeah, I think it's not so much who we were playing today. It's just we're at the point where 
we've somehow, you know, prior to kickoff, found ourselves in third. Okay, the gap was down to two, but we're at a point where, you know, it's in our control. We just, as if it's not as easy to go and win, but, you know, we, we can control it to, to a degree. We just have to worry about our results. Barry Robson's and, is making look, look look pretty easy. Well, he is. He absolutely is. But I mean, it's, it's a good place to be somehow third with a cushion now, a bigger cushion than I thought we might have had. But more importantly, it's in our hands. We don't have to be relying on favours or anything like that. And, you know, if we could keep this momentum going, you know, at that rate, it might be wrapped up with a couple of games to go, which would be quite the turnaround. You you cannot underestimate the scale of the turnaround from where we were in January. Seven wins in a row, eight wins out of ten, six clean sheets in those ten games. I don't think we kept six clean sheets under either Goodwin or Glass in their entirety of being here. It turns (laughs) out that the defence actually was reasonably easy to fix. Just Jim Goodwin wasn't the guy to do it. Yeah, and this is the thing, isn't it? It's... um... The reason I'm so intrigued by it is because I, I, I could sense Hearts fans getting their dander up after their win yesterday. Um, what I would say is that that was quite possibly one of the very worst all-time performances that Ross County put in at Tynecastle. So that, that was Hall of Fame-worthy performance by Ross County at, at Tynecastle, yes, which certainly helped a little bit. But you could sense that they were getting their dander up and, you know, that, that cut the gap to, to, to two points and that we would like unlikely to take anything today and therefore, you know, all eyes would be on Tynecastle for that game. If they win that, they're ahead of us. Whereas now, as Graham says, we can even afford to lose in Tynecastle and we'd still have that two-point cushion. Obviously, that's not what you want to happen, clearly, but, you know, we could afford that now. And I think even more importantly, we talked on the way at the ground, it's a nine-point gap now to, to Hibs and St Mirren. In, in fifth and sixth, which I think right now guarantees us at least fourth as a minimum now. So that does guarantee us that European football. I'd love us obviously to finish in third to guarantee the group stage stuff. But um, that's why I think today was so crucial as well, was just that, like I said, just to pop that little bit of momentum building in Gorgie possibly. That was a, an easy victory for them yesterday against Ross County. It's going to be a lot harder for them um, when we come in to split their record against the team's remarkably their record against the other teams in the top six is the worst of all the teams in the top six as well going forward so they don't have a lot of form coming into this one although obviously they've got the the advantage they will play us at Tyne Castle unless the SFA decide to, or the SPFL sorry decide to do something a bit mad with the fixtures and we'll, we'll, we'll await that with bated breath tomorrow in terms of setup, I think we were all maybe a little bit surprised that we did go with the same systems the same shape that we have done um, for the last few weeks, Duncan just sitting further advanced than Ramadani and Clarkson. I don't think any of us expected us to perhaps do that when we when we did the preview show last week. Um, and we did struggle. Um, and, and Barry Robson admit, himself admitted that in his, his post-match interviews that certainly in the opening 30 minutes to try and get any sort of real foothold in the game, I felt we were overrun midfield. And it felt inevitable, as Gavin said, that this was a game where we're going to lose at that point. Um, I wasn't surprised by the fact that we kept the same shape because I didn't see Robson changing what has been a very effective system where we're definitely getting the best out of a number of players. I was surprised that Duncan maintained his place in the team. Um, I think I said last week that I expected that McCrory would go back in a midfield and, and Matty Kennedy would come in at right wing back. Um, I'm just going to keep predicting that, by the way, because one day it'll come true and I'll look <laughs> like a genius. Um, and yeah, I, th- I thought that, I mean, Duncan's not the not the kind of lone culprit as far as the first no, no. half goes i, I don't think we i don't were... think it's duncan's fault actually i think just playing him in that more advanced role just wasn't working it could have been anyone 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I thought that our pressing game in the first half was pretty pretty horrendous, to be quite honest with you. Um, a lot of players chasing the ball and kind of what Rangers want you to do is, you know, to chase things and that leave space for, um, you know, there's always like a triangle that they seem to play and you get frustrated watching it, just thinking like, how is that guy free? Um, but you just see that our players have been drawn to the ball all too often. Um, yeah, it. I, I was I was surprised at uh, halftime when the players came out for the second half. There was no no change uh, from Barry Robson, but uh, hey, all worked out. Maybe that's why he's going to be the next Aberdeen manager, not me. We'll come on that in a minute or two. But um, I was fully expecting a change of shape at halftime. I tweeted it at the time that I expected that was what was going to happen. Robson himself again admitted it in the halftime in the in his post match. Sorry, the um, we planned all week for them playing some sort of diamond system in the midfield, and they ended up with like a two and a two, so it was kind of like a box. And we just it kind of threw us a little bit in terms of what we were expecting. It took us until the kind of last fifty minutes, of the first half, to even try and get the press right. Credit for us to go to Robson and Agnew because whatever they did say at halftime, whatever tweaks they maybe made from a tactical perspective, it did the job because we're certainly a lot more aggressive in our work. I felt. And we get the rewards so early in that second half. Whatever it was, I mean, the back three especially seemed to be a lot more assured in what their what their role was and who they were primarily intended to be picking up. And yeah, then you get the support from the midfield players, the wing backs. I thought um, Ross McCrory and Johnny Hayes got through a got through a power of work today. Um, and then yeah, you you do wonder how things might have gone had um, had Liam Scales not done what Liam Scales went went ahead and did, but. Uh, what well, Liam Scales does. What Liam Scales, Liam Scales doing Liam Scales things. Liam Scales doing Liam Scales things. Just looking up, giving it the old, what, how do you call it? The old uh, look away. <laughs> the look away shot from 40 yards on the byline. Sensational stuff. And were you surprised we came out same sort of shape, same sort of system, opening the second half? Were you um, expecting a change? No, I wasn't really because I don't think we've really seen that from Robson so far. I think he, he obviously backs his players and the system to to prevail. I thought I, I thought we needed to do something because the first half, like Gavin says, I feel like we you know we've we've seen that one before where we're not really in it, but we're not really out of it, and then sucker punch, and then and then that's that. So I felt we probably should have changed something, but I think he, you know, himself and the management team clearly just have a a real belief that those players in that system are going to give anyone a game. And you're right, how the game would have panned out had we not scored so early, who knows? But then there's a lot to be, you know, I think there's a reasonable case to say it might have worked for us anyway, because they didn't, you know, there was a period where I guess there were a few blocks and things in and around the box. But in large, uh, by and large, I don't really think... You know, Roos had one really good save, but it's not like we were getting absolutely overrun, albeit other than the second goal, I can't really think of us causing them too many problems. So it's all ifs, buts and maybes. Uh, I think Robson seems to be quite, I don't know, I feel like he makes the game simple for his players in so much as it's clear. I know we were maybe getting um, chasing shadows in the first half a little bit until we figured out what formation they were playing, how do we deal with it? But after that, setting half in particular, we seemed to have a real handle on what we were supposed to be doing and who was looking after who. And I think Robson and everyone just seems to be quite good at setting ourselves up in a way that people can excel and make the most of the abilities, you know, the ability that they they have rather than trying to be 
clever and fancy and feeling like he's got to do something different. It's quite refreshing to see him decide that, no, we're on a good run. We're a decent team. We're at home. We're just going to come at you the same way and hopefully get something out of it. And it it worked a treat today. I do think as well that at halftime, I think the players were probably told to be a bit more aggressive in their defensive work. Mm -hmm. I thought that there was a a blend, an unpleasant blend of in the first half of using that term, probably being overly respectful to Rangers at times, and also then just trying to chase the ball when at a time that maybe it's not there. You need to pick your battles a little bit more, a little bit more smartly than than what we did. But then you know, we get the goal, and then like I still remember, like Rangers got their kickoff. Johnny Hayes snaps into a tackle straight away. Leighton Clarkson snaps into a tackle. It did seem like yeah, we were certainly more about getting it more in their face in a way that is a. Uh, Going to cause them, you know, a little bit more distress running them on the ball, and also not leave us with them um, only eight men on the pitch because of the way that the refereeing is in Scotland these days. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, what I really enjoyed about our performance, especially the second half today, was we were really aggressive in what we were doing, and we were nasty, but not in a not in a over the top way. But we were a hard team to play against this afternoon, and you could see the Rangers players not liking it, and you could see them wilting. In that atmosphere. By the way, we'll have to say it now. The atmosphere at Pataudi this afternoon, electric. I think that's possibly, it's up there with me from like, you know, Copenhagen in terms of just how well that ground has ever sounded today. That was phenomenal stuff from the support. And the support deserves a lot of credit for this as well. I feel that this whole season turnaround now, it feels like everybody's kind of galvanized a little bit and everyone's kind of united again. And I don't know, there's just something about the buzz around the club again just now, which has been missing for a long time. There's nothing um, better than going to your ground when it's full and it's full of your fans and everyone's getting behind the team and then they don't shit the bed and they deliver for you. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, it's just, you know, unfortunately we don't get it nearly enough. Um, but yeah, it was really, really good today. But if you ever want to watch a team in the image of their manager, that felt like it was that today with our team. Barry Robson is a winner as a player. He was never the most silky footballer. He had a wonderful left foot and he worked hard every day at what he did. And that to me was an Aberdeen team in the image of their manager today. I would, regarding the atmosphere, agree that I think, especially when it comes to league football, I can't think of Pataudry being like that um, probably ever. Uh, in all honesty it was quite a quite a special place to be uh certainly especially in the red shed was quite hugged a lot of strangers today one of the, one of one of one of them days speaking of which uh the chap in front of us who took an absolute fucking heater after the first goal yeah straight off the seat onto the concrete i hope your back is all right because that it was, was, was okay at the point the second went in because he was yeah. celebrating that quite vigorously as well <laughs> yeah that's I when am, you'll feel in the morning <laughs> i am delighted that that chap knew how to take his flat back bumps yeah, he's been practicing. <laughs> Otherwise, that could have been all kinds of paperwork. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, when it comes to what is your, your point about the support, listen, we have had to endure a lot of shit over the last two years, especially two grotesque managerial appointments, outright humiliation, um, and times where you think to yourself, why am I bothering with this? Days like today, that's why it's all worth it. I think we'll just circle back though. Is it a team in the image of Barry Robson? We are, we are, we're not a nice team to play against, are we? And I am all for that. Barry Robson and many of his opponents can attest to this was a nasty bastard on the pitch. Um, just ask Ray Bradshaw. I saw Ray t- tweeting out about this earlier on. 
many many players in 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 the red of Aberdeen and uh, in other colours against Aberdeen will will attest to that. Um, I think like you say is absolutely right. Barry Robson was maybe not the best footballer, but he made the absolute most of his ability by by working hard and being competitive on the pitch. And that is definitely what I see with the way that he's molded the players that he had and with the players that he's brought in. I think more importantly, it's a team from a personal point of view that I, I can get behind is likable. There's there are characters in there. Yeah. You've got your sort of flair players that we're all thoroughly enjoying, but then you've got Pollock McDonald, for example, that just don't like the idea of anything getting past them. And you can relate to that because you want that mentality and that sort of just chucking yourself for everything. And then you've got, you know, other guys that can play Clarkson stuff. So you got you got a bit of everything, but I feel like it's from my point of view, it's a likable team. It you know, feels I, like it's, it feels like the most likable team we've had for a while. But I can get, yeah, I can get behind this team. I mean, you, you get behind any team with the results, but yeah, they 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 seem to be getting it. They're working hard for each other, and they seem to realise that you know that what we were getting served up. Because to be to be honest, I mean, obviously some of them were culpable in some of the utter nonsense. Well, that we've seen that, for yeah. last season or so. So you know whether well, they've now realised. Hang on, we were coasting here or whatever. Um, it's good to see the new recruits fit in, but it's also good to see some of the guys that we thought eh, this might be it for them. I get a new lease of life. Just on that, I mean, Liam Scales. I don't know if it was a bit of a slip, and he didn't mean to say it, but I noticed. I was just looking through the kind of Sky Sports um, feed earlier on. I was, cause I was wanting to show the kids the goals when I got in from got in from the game and. Liam Scales' interview after the game, he said right at the very end, I think somebody had asked that the interview asked him, what do you think the secret is? Why do you think things have improved so much? And he basically said, I feel that tactically we're in a better place right now. So I don't necessarily feel that, yeah, you're right. And some of the players on the pitch today were culpable for Darville and at Hibs and at Hearts in that week. But I think when you hear Scales say something like that, that does make me go, okay, that sounds like a, a player talking on behalf of a squad and whether he means it or not intimating that they weren't overly happy either with maybe some of the tactical decisions that were taking place under the previous regime. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of is what it is from that from that perspective. It breaks my heart a little bit knowing that this squad is probably not going to be together for very much longer because of the sheer number of loan players that there are involved. Um, and I think we'll come on to some of that in a few minutes or not. Let's just break down the team a little bit further um, on today's performance. Kel Roos. Gav, you said last week Kelrus was starting to win you over. You were now starting to be convinced by Kelrus. That's a performance today that's going to convince you further, isn't it? You talk about the big moments, your goalkeeper, where you need him to come up big. And Sakala in the first half, when he gets through that one-on-one, -on -one, if he scores there, completely different game. Sakala is pish though, so you know. It's not a great finish, but Kelrus still does well to spread himself and get the ball away with his legs. And then... 2-0 up. Um, that's safe from Tavernier, which was about 15 minutes left to go. Yeah. It makes the game very, very, very nervy for Aberdeen. It's a massive save. It's a great reaction stop. Came in clean balls. The things we've all said that we weren't sure about him did a lot of it well today. I mean, I'm still not convinced he's good with his feet. That's about what people tell me. The barometer for that Aberdeen seems to be, is he better than Joe Lewis? Oh, he's good with his feet. Some of his distribution still seems to be like he's trying to find touch, which I'm not asking on. But other than that, I thought he's, be, like I say, he's become a lot more proactive, a lot more intense in the way that he presses. And he's another one that just seems to to get it and have this connection yeah. with the support as well, which uh, which will also go a long way. He has got all the physical attributes in the world to be a very good goalkeeper. He's, what, 28, 29 kind of age, I think? 
So he should be in kind of theory entering into his prime as a goalkeeper. Uh, this kind of form, I would have no issue with him being our goalkeeper next year. And, you know, perhaps even looking at uh, an extension because he's only got a year left after this. He's 30, he'll be 31 in May. Yeah, so kind of prime time goalkeeping kind of age. Yeah, he could be there for the next five or six years if you want to be. He's, um, yeah, I mean, that's probably roughly the kind of age that, that Joe Lewis um, arrived at Aberdeen at and he made a pretty good career of it in the end. Um, whatever it is with, you know, Sampson or, you know, the the overall management team, they're really putting it together with, with Kelris and that today was a, a great performance for him. Yeah, I thought he was good. I didn't have a great deal to do, which is obviously what you want from your, your keeper, but what you had to do did it really well. Um, and yeah, crucial saves, like Gavin said, of you know, as much as we are stronger and more resilient, we we didn't create loads of chances. So had we gone one nil down, that would have made life difficult. And then had we conceded with 15 minutes to go, I still think we would have been okay because we're tougher than we were, but still it's not a situation you want to find yourself in. So massive save just to, you know, take the pressure off, even had some little Time wasting the one where he kind of, I can't remember, he goes to take the ball off McCrory just about when the Rangers player's there, drops to his knees. That's fine. It's another 30 seconds gone. Always, Even better, a goalie with fine. cramp after 67 minutes, all for it. Yes, that's true. So, uh, no, he's come under fire from probably everyone, ourselves included, definitely justifiably so earlier on. But so far, so good. He's another one that just seems to have had a bit of a, a new lease of life and a real change in, in his form. So, yeah, like Gavin says, if he can continue like that, you'd be in pretty good shape for your keeper. Another clean sheet as well. I did yeah. enjoy that as he was down for <clears throat> cramp and we were allowing Liam Scales to conduct his amateur physiotherapy. Our own, you know, medical department were just, you know, likely trotting over to pay attention to him. Not overly dissimilar to Kel uh, when he was trying to get back from that uh, corner kick against St. Mirren. I mean, bizarrely now, I mean, again, like, you look at how bad our... You go back and you think how how, how horrendous our defensive situation was early in the season. I'm just looking at the stats now. So in the, Premier, in the Premiership, we now have the third highest number of clean sheets in the league um, with 12, which is just one, it's just one behind Rangers and just two behind Celtic this season. Um, it's such a remarkable turnaround. It's not even funny. The majority of those will go to Keller Ruiz. Obviously, uh, Horta will have a couple in there, I think, as well. But... Remarkable, remarkable turnaround from that perspective. Um, let's talk about Boyamiovsky quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm going to mix up the format here a little bit because I think when, there are certain people who deserve to be talked about. Going out of order. This is a, a rogue move. I know. That's what the drink will do to you. Um, I saw some people at halftime saying that Miovsky should have been one that was getting hooked because they didn't think he was offering enough. I thought Miovsky had a good game today. I thought first half he had very little to work with. I can see Gav's got a big smirk on his face. I so mean, Gav's going to disagree. This, this, this is why football is such a beautiful <laughs> and complex game. <laughs> I thought we also did okay first half with with very little service. I thought you could there was a couple of things you could have done a little bit better with. But the goal in the second half is why you keep Bowie and me obviously on the pitch, isn't it? I thought he could have been probably off at half time. He was frustrating <laughs> me. I don't think he had a very good first half. The ball didn't stick with him. And then when he did get it, he tries to be clever when he doesn't need to be because we're under pressure. He should just be trying to keep the ball. I didn't think he'd had a very good game. And I get that you want to keep your flair players on, but his form has been so far below Duke the last few weeks that had he been taken off, depending on what we did, like if we tried to put, I don't know, maybe Watkins on, if we tried to keep some sort of similar shape and some sort of intent to attack them, 
I'd have been okay with it. Obviously, if we'd taken him off and we'd decided we're going to try and see out for a point, maybe not so much. But I didn't think he had a very good first half, to be perfectly honest. What was the word you used, Graham? Frustrating for the first yes. half. I thought he was terrible in the first half. So I thought he did okay first half. I thought for the same reasons that Graham's mentioned that when it came to his hold-up play, it wasn't nearly good enough as far as, you know, just getting being able to get us up the pitch. Like, say, there was times where he was trying to flick the ball to, I don't know who, but it was, I mean, if it was a Rangers player, then nailed it. Um, and then there was an opportunity in the in the first half where he kind of runs the Rangers defence. If he's a bit more aggressive, I think he can get the ball to Duke, but he just yeah. sort of for lack of a better word, shites out of it, really. Um, I did not think he was had a good game at all uh, up until up until that diving header. And hey, listen, the diving header is the thing of beauty, and that is exactly why you keep him on. But if he'd been hooked at halftime, I don't think he would have had any right to complain. Second half performance was good, though, wasn't it? I thought he did okay first half with limited opportunities to get on the ball. I thought he was at least doing the things that I think people have said about me, obviously they don't like in terms of he was up challenging for headers, he was trying to get involved, he was trying to be physical, he was, he was running... Thought he was trying what he could do. I mean, Duke didn't. We'll come up to Duke in a minute because this is where the interesting. This is where the thing about Miofsky keeping him on where it pays off because, and this is the beauty about us at least having two goal scorers and match winners in our squad now because Duke had a poor game today. Didn't really do very much. Didn't contribute very much. It was clear that Rangers viewed him as being the main threat. I think every time he got the ball, he was doubled up on. And that's going to be something that will happen more often than not, I think, as the season progresses and into next season if Duke remains here. But what that does do, it does, it does leave like Miofsky with maybe potentially more space. But that's why you keep Miofsky on. It's nice for us to have two players now sitting on 18 goals this season. Um, that's the beauty of having these two, isn't it? Together as a duo. And the, the diving header is just... Um, when it comes to Duke, yeah, absolutely. He, If Miofsky was terrible the whole for the first half, Duke was not very good for the duration of the time that he was on the pitch. It seemed that um, John Suter especially really had his had his numbers today, I thought. Um, and it's just, his I don't know, his, his running power just didn't seem to be quite there today. It seemed like every Rangers player that attracted him seemed to get the better of him. But like you say, he is, he is such a threat that Rangers are going to inevitably have to pay attention to him. And that's where you, you know, that's where Miofsky's probably superior in-game intelligence will allow him to drift away from Duke and create yeah. space. And that's, I think, what happens at the at the goal. And then we just have to pay a little bit of, put some respect on the name of Leighton Clarkson. Because Let's ball, do that now. That, I feel like I've said this so many times about Leighton Clarkson this season, but there's one thing to have the vision for that cross pass, to execute it the way he does with the kind of outside of the right foot, yeah, kind of swerve it back in towards Miofsky and not go straight into in the Richards on stand. That is an absolute baller of a player. Unreal. And but Miofsky has a lot to do still, and he does it with absolute aplomb. Let's talk about Leighton Clarkson then really quickly. I didn't really have him. It's it's funny because when we were putting together the, the top Don poll, I actually didn't really consider Clarkson in it because I didn't think he'd had an overly impressive game with the exception of the assist for Miofsky. It was then afterwards, I it was when I got home, I realised actually that um, it was Clarkson who cleared that one off the line in the first half. I thought it was Johnny Hayes at the time. Um, Clarkson's transformation under Barry Robson is also quite remarkable. Um, I think, I'm not entirely sure if this is entirely correct, but I'm going to go for it just now because I spotted it. It was Chidi, I think, who posted it earlier on. Six out of his seven assists this season have been in the last nine games since Barry Robson came in the door. Um, so there is clearly that 
I think we've already known that he had the talent and the ability, but in recent weeks that's been supplemented by the work ethic and the kind of tenacity about which he's gone around his business. And this is the thing that I think this is where we're going to struggle a little bit next season unless we can recruit a player like Leighton Clarkson, which is going to be very difficult because he's an exceptionally good footballer. If you look at, I think, the number of assists that Clarkson has made to Miofsky in particular this season, I suspect it's probably the highest, you know, partnership you want to look at it that way in our team. And how many of those have been like today? And I think back to Motherwell in particular at home uh, early in Robson's um, tenure, where Miofsky is making wonderful runs, like really, really good movement. But you need a player who can A, see it, and B, as Gavin says, execute to make the most of that movement. That's going to be difficult to replicate next season if Miofsky's still here, isn't it? Uh, definitely. I think I think he's improved over the course of the season. I think you're right. We've not lost the creative side of him and the ability to pick passes like he did today. But I think he's working harder. And it's not like he's playing at tackles. That's obviously not his game. But, you know, he, he's clearly a bit more aware of where there might be danger. You know, he clears the one. There was even one in the second half where... I think he slides in. I think McDonald's about to clear it, but Clarkson's tracked the guy back and yeah. clears the ball out. So he's working hard, but we haven't lost to the creative side of it. But I think you're right. It's going to be really, it's going to be really difficult to get anyone like that again. And then you might have that double whammy of if you do have Miofsky, they're sitting here thinking that's ace. We've got him for another year, but actually, if nobody can find him with the ball, he's not going to thrive in a battering ram type role. And whilst he's a very good player, he's a good player making good runs and then finishing chances. If people aren't laying the balls on for him, he's probably not going to have a particularly fruitful season. Um, I've never doubted Leighton Clarkson's work ethic. Um, I think even early in the season when he was playing with Ramadani and Connor Barron, it wasn't necessarily working, but I think he was always trying. He just didn't really know how to be without the ball. It has definitely changed um, under Bayer Robson. This is, again, another tick in the box as far as Bayer Robson goes of just improving players in such a short space of time. Um, obviously, finding that little pocket of space in the midfield, which he's just allowed him to thrive in this kind of quarterback role has been a very good thing for him. But, I mean, today, you know, you're talking about the awareness to be on the line for to clear the ball. Graham's mentioning that one where him and McDonald almost get into into each other's road mm-hmm. but you know at the end of the day you're just happy that someone's taking charge of the situation after the Tavernier uh, effort that Kyle Roos saves when Roos is out of position it falls to Cantwell he's almost kind of got like an open goal it's Leighton Clarkson throwing his body in the line um, I'm I'm not going to talk about the issues going forward next season because right? this is a time to talk about celebration and celebration alone and I'm just going to believe in my heart and hearts that uh, he's currently on the blower to Jurgen Klopp saying stuff it. I want to come back to Aberdeen and play with my mate, my Paul again. Um, just while we're talking, I've just realised um, <laughs> I just realised that there's a, a, a video doing the rounds just now. With, remember remember in the middle of the second half, um, Nick Walsh went over and spoke to a man in a high-vis vest and we weren't really sure what that was all about. I believe it's doing yes. the ball boys. Yeah, I believe he was telling the ball boys to hurry up. What a balloon. What, well, uh, yeah, what's yeah. he talking the steward about? He should be talking to Matty Pollock because he was giving the stewards all their instructions. <laughs> yeah, he was giving the ball boys all their instructions. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fuck the SFA. Seriously. Yeah, like, have you ever seen that before? What a load of nonsense. Uh, l- listen, um, I am, 
I try to not watch Aberdeen games through the kind of lens of that there's a inherent conspiracy within the SFA to favor one or two teams in particular because I that think must be you, really fucking hard Gavin yeah it's more or less for my own mental well-being because I think if you do that that leads to the kind of obsessive behavior where you're ending up taking pictures of your laptop of like referees shaking hands with club captains before games and then posting that online as your smoking gun evidence that there is a conspiracy but um I first half especially the threshold as far as what justified a Rangers free kick versus what have justified an Aberdeen free kick was quite quite the spectacle from, from Nick Walsh. Um, yeah, he was, to be polite, incredibly frustrating uh, all, <laughs> yeah. all 90 minutes. Yeah, indeed. Thankfully, um, though, the forces of good still prevailed. Indeed, indeed. Uh, let's, let's quickly talk about Elba Ramadani. I was going to say, we'll just let you have the floor. Thought he was brilliant today. I've seen people say it. They, it was like, I know, imagine, shock, horror, <laughs> settle down, everybody. Thought he was brilliant. I thought, I thought he was excellent. I thought it was like three Graham Shinnies in there this afternoon. Just everyone on the pitch. Again, I, I actually agree with you this, Gab. I think that he does give the ball away in silly positions a bit too much. I think he's just over-eager, I think is what happens. But work ethic, determination, drive. He ran over the top of Raskin as well in that second half, which was great. And that, that final, the 94, I don't know what minute it was because obviously there was eight minutes added on at the end when he won the ball off of Lundstrom on the south stand side, drove away from him. Ah, delightful stuff, isn't it? I mean, I know Gav's not sold and Graham just enjoys sitting on the fence on this one. But for, I don't know, 150 grand from Budapest, he's he's been not a bad find, has he? Yeah, he, he fucking loves the dons. He fucking loves the dons. He had a good game. He's been a good signing. Yes, there are frustrations, but the, the reality is there's a frustration with every player that plays for Aberdeen, that's why they play for Aberdeen. If, if you didn't have that in your game, you'd be you'd be at a higher level. I thought I thought he was good today. I was concerned not having Shinny in there with his tenacity that you know that this might be a bit too much for us because I'm not convinced Duncan has been playing all that that well. But it, but it all worked out and. Um, yeah, it was a good a good shift from him. And again, but at the end, it's just a good example of his his character. I mean, the game's pretty much done. There's not long to go, but he's just trying to not necessarily attack Rangers, but get the ball up the, the pitch, draw a foul, maybe whatever, buy us some time and the engine to keep going and doing that um, is really pretty impressive. So maybe if his ball retention was a little bit better, that might take out some of the palpitations for Gav, but overall, he's been a very good signing and had a good game. Um, in the first half, I thought he sort of embodied what I'm talking about as far as trying to win balls that weren't there to be won and suddenly a Rangers player turns and you find yourself in a dangerous situation. He's a little bit like Willow Flood in that sense, as just wants to win the ball every time, all the time. And I think that can be, again, he can choose his battles um, with a bit more wisdom. I think that's fair. And as I said, I do think he tends to not retain the ball as much as I would hope that he could. Um, but as far as, I think in the second half, he sort of kind of smartened up a little bit, as did the whole team. Um, I liked that he was kind of getting in about Cantwell as much as he could. Um, and, you know, Ilver's not the biggest guy in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but he stood up to Lundstrom, who is who is quite a big uh, presence in there. And I thought he was, uh, as the game went on and, you know, Rangers kind of got a bit more foothold of the ball. Uh, I thought Ilber 
was giving us a lot of protection in the defense and like you say the energy allows him to then turn you know uh winning the ball at any part of the field into a potential dawn's attack and we could have got a a third goal which would have been the icing on the cake but let's not be too greedy no let's not let's let's not be too greedy and listen here's the thing i'm gonna throw this one over the club right now ilber says he wants to come on he wants to talk to us let it happen come on the people demand it the people is that you me i just want to speak to him <laughs> is, this, um, is this is this really the podcast we're talking about the people fuck the people they got fucked today that's fair enough um he wants to do it come on make it happen and we'll do it in person but just me this time um <laughs> handle it dinner <laughs> exactly they did that thing with Vinny going in looking for sticky toffee pudding it's the least we could do yeah, if we can find some uh, Albanian cuisine in Aberdeen, we can get that sorted out. Yeah, it'd be fine. Exactly. Right. Anyway, petition to make it happen. Anyone listens out there, no, let's not do go down that rabbit hole. Anyway, um, we've already talked about Duke. Quite a game for him today. Um, we've talked about Ramadan. We've talked about Clarkson. Hayes McCrory, I thought, power of work between the two of them. Thought they were excellent. Um, maybe not a... Their best games in terms of what they provided going forward, but I think in terms of their just their work rate, their application, excellent. Interesting uh, on the way out, Kenny McIntyre from BBC. Clearly, there always has to be a damper put on something uh, relating to Aberdeen. The news really um, coming out, and we'd heard earlier in the week that there might have been some chat about Bristol City being in for McCrory. It would appear that those talks are maybe a bit further advanced. Talk of a fee of about two million pounds for Ross McCrory in the summer for a, a move. Willie Miller was adamant that the club should turn that down even if that sort of money was on offer, uh, Willie Miller's exact words were he's a Rolls Royce of a player. That's something we've described before. And I don't know what of Aberdeen fans don't really get McCrory. And I wonder why. I think he's flattered to deceive in a number of different roles in his time at Aberdeen and he's never really settled into one. It would be typical Aberdeen, wouldn't it, that we maybe finally find the position that he is. I'm not even convinced he's best suited for it, but I think he offers the most to the team right now in this role. We find a position and then we flog him in the summer. That said, two million quid seems like a, a good bit of business. Um, I think Graham and I were talking about this. He signed, for all intents and purposes, a four-year contract last summer. Yeah. Uh, so the ball is very much in our court um, as far as the fee and the valuation um, that will justify us letting him go. Um, I think two million is not nearly enough as far as what the hole that he will leave in a team that is going to be like Swiss already cheese. decimated, yeah, like yeah. Swiss cheese, entirely full of holes. Um, you know, and you just, as you said, McCrory can fill. A Sorry, number Gav, of we all know what Swiss cheese looks like. You don't need to explain the metaphor. You know, right? Uh, some people out there might not might not be too <laughs> sure. Um, he because we know that he could play right wing back. It could, could be play, it could be Gruyere, I guess. Which is, play him in centre midfield. God forbid we ever have to play him at centre back ever again. <laughs> he has been the victim of um, some some poor managers um, not knowing how to utilise his ability to the to its to its uh, to its maximum potential. Um, and I I, th- I don't think Ross McRae signs a f- what I think again what I describe as effectively a four year deal if he's like hankering for a move away from Aberdeen. I've never seen anything to suggest that he is uh, two million. Not enough for me. No, I, I agree. Um... You could maybe make a case for it if we didn't have the rebuilding work that we've got to do. And if the squad was fairly stable, you might think, well, okay, fine, take the one in, we'll, we'll get a replacement. But with everything that's going on in the summer, I think it'd be a big loss and you'd have to recruit. I don't see, on the assumption that we're going to play in a similar manner, 
I don't really see a ready-made replacement on the books. I guess unless we already have a replacement lined up on the books already um, with our, you know, our our vast network now of data scouting and everything that's going on from a recruitment perspective. Maybe we've already got a replacement lined up for them and two million makes perfect sense to us as a football club. This is me looking from outside in thinking we're, you know, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board. But yeah, maybe there's a, a plan in place and it'll be seamless, but £2 million doesn't really feel like it's what you'd want. Had he not signed that extension last summer, £2 million would be biting your hand off, but he's a hard player for three more years. He's a vital player for Aberdeen. £2 million is not nearly enough. Okay, let's move on quickly because we'll talk about John Hazen again in a minute or two. Um, back three today. Uh, I thought we were a bit shaky opening... 30 minutes. Um, it was a thing I was a bit worried about was getting turned and Matty Pollock did do an incredible impression of a break dancer early doors in the in the first half. Um, but then they did settle into it. I think as we gradually got more of a foothold, then they started to come at the fore a bit more. In that second half in particular, it's about as comfortable as I think I've ever felt watching a game like today against one of those two. But I felt we were going to be pretty comfortable. Um Matty Pock and Angus McDowell thought were brilliant, but I thought Liam Skills' performance this afternoon was exceptional. I think that's, by by a distance, put the goal to one side. Um, by a million miles, it was his best game, I think, in an Aberdeen shirt anyway. The goal just caps it off, doesn't it? Um, as far as, you know, the entire back three, I mean, yeah, Matty Pollock, he does go a little bit Stevie G against Chelsea in the first half. That lets Sakala in, and yeah, that could have been disastrous but after that i thought yeah we settled in um still a bit nervous because you get the pollock mcdonald collision that sees um you know pollock have to go off uh if that had been more serious that could have really really um shafted us uh, but then in the second half especially i thought they just all you know looked very assured everyone was talking to one another making sure people were knew what they were doing who with who to mark up and then even when moments do get a little bit more desperate if it's a, a last ditch kind of header to stop Morelos from scoring at the back post like Scales does or just throwing your bodies in the way these guys they just they take such pride in in keeping clean sheets it's just it's night and day for from where we've been for not even really all that long but it's felt like a long time as an Aberdeen fan um I think that Matty Pollock is a guy that's got wisdom beyond his years uh the way that he was acting in the second half just you know it's complete shithousery of the finest order, just instructing the ball boys to just throw the balls on, like an extra ball, and every time so we can, you know, uh, run down the clock a little bit. And uh, he's a he's a guy he's a guy that gets it. The way that he was, you know, standing up to Morelos in the second half as well. He is just he's such a, a, a an endearing character as well. She's being a, a very good defender. Angus McDonald has got an amazing ability of just being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, for a guy that's quite limited as far as his speed and mobility i think he's been yeah just uh reads the game well reads the he's, game he's, well. he's a he's a great yeah he's a great reader of the game he's a better footballer than i expected him to be as well yeah i'll I say agree. that um especially when you think what swindon fans were saying when we signed him and then liam scales like you said i mean he was a colossus a colossus today that uh, liam scales today has um you know he's um he's a guy that's likewise like everyone coming for his fair share of stick and it's been warranted on a number of occasions, uh, but since we've shifted this back three with him at the the left side, he's been great. It's it's a completely different Liam Scales to what we've seen today. That was um, that's back to the feeling of why have Celtic let this guy go, and why do they still seem to be not that keen on keeping him? 
that he will be a remarkably good player if he can sustain that kind of form. He was excellent. Yeah, they were all really, really solid. Uh, I think I think it just goes back to obviously Robson's identified just good defenders. And we don't have, you know, we, he's not making them do anything that they can't do, they're uncomfortable with. You know, there's no, you've got to be strolling out defence and pinging passes. Just keep the ball out of the net. Yeah. Head I've, it, kick it, shell it, whatever you need to do, do your defending. And I think I like their, you know, they seem to complement each other. They're obviously talking to each other through who's doing what. But I like when they need to tackle, they can. But there was a couple of examples. I can't remember who the Rangers player was. In the second half, you know, McDonald tracks him back, basically just stands up to him. I think he got, I think it, they, they get a corner. Oh, Sakala, yeah. Because he, but he doesn't do anything, he doesn't panic, he doesn't dive in, doesn't do anything stupid. He's basically catches up to him, he's like, all right, that's fine. If you're going to beat me, great, but I'm not going to make it easy for you by diving in, for example. And then Sakala just, all right, okay, kicks the ball off him and it's out. But the fact is, he's, he's there. You know, we've gone are the days where anytime the ball came into our box, everyone seemed to be surprised that someone yeah. from the opposition was there. So, yeah, they, they've been excellent. It's just a real shame that some or none of them will be here next season. I mean, how how great would it be if we were in this run of form with most of that squad signed yeah, up for tied a couple up for of years? You'd be looking, yeah. yeah, you'd be looking at the summer thinking, well, a couple of tweaks, maybe a couple of first-teamers, better tweaks to the to the bench. This would be really exciting. Um, so, yeah, thoroughly enjoying it while lasts enjoying these guys and you never know if you could if you could do something to get them back you'd have uh, a pretty good defence I mean the one thing you would say uh, Gav it's, it's time for the second petition of the show Angus McDonald two year deal announce it tomorrow yeah I've been really impressed with him I think he's been really, I, I take your point he's maybe not the the quickest you know he probably doesn't excel at anything as such but he just seems to be I guess he's obviously just got a good understanding of the game because more often than not he's in the right place at the right time and that's really all you want reads the game well and I think the thing is he's bringing along Pollock with him I think you know McDonald's also got the experience Pollock is that little bit more raw he's talking through games you see it Pollock's got all the attributes to be a really 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 good sense of defender scales is benefiting as well I think scales is as well yeah yeah, I I feel like everyone I guess if you've got guys that you know are sort of vocal but in the right way, coaching people through, or even just guys where you you buy into what they're trying to do, and you don't want to let them down. That almost raises everyone's game. You know, he's he's kind of leading by example because he hasn't really fucked up yet. Yeah. So yeah, he can be shouting at people, and you're kind of like, oh yeah, I don't want to let him down. Whereas I don't know if Tony's breaking you, you'd be like, fuck off, Tony. It's your fault that we've just conceded. It's difficult to it's <laughs> difficult to take it from a guy who's making mistakes. Whereas someone who doesn't put or hasn't put a foot wrong you can kind of think right okay i can see why he's on at me i think there's two strands to this isn't there? there's one um the players themselves and their abilities and I'll, i want to touch on that in a second but the second part of this as well is that robson has just got the defenders defending and that's all yeah. they need to cons- that's all they need to do they defend and they get rid of the ball when that's fine um it, <laughs> there's a tiny part of me i don't know if it's like the masochist in me is kind of intrigued to see you've what Tony Stewart would be like in a Barry Robson team, where he's just asked to defend. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure. I actually, I'm not sure. I want to see it. But we said a, a couple like, of weeks or a couple of weeks ago. I think it's too far gone with yeah. the fact that Robson jettisoned about probably means he's made up his mind and with the fan base. But yeah. I, I take your point, I and mean, this is going back to the sort of Robson's 
what he's trying to get from the team is, and this is not a criticism, I think he's just trying to keep it simple. He's got a bunch of guys that are decent at, in a role, and he's just saying, well, you you do what you're good at, and, it, and it's working for us. This obsession with trying to make players do something that they can't yeah. do, uh, you know, wasn't just good when you look across the board, watch any team every week, and you've got managers trying to set people up to be some sort of fancy system or whatever. Guys just need to be clear on what they need to do and go out and do it well. Why not to make people be who they are not? Uh, on yeah. the Tony Stewart idea, if you guys can uncover the kind of technology where you can slip into a parallel universe and watch yeah. Tony Stewart's in by Robin's team, you're on your own. Um, I guess as well, credit has to go to, because again, Graham, you said it there, but he's finding these defenders. Credit has to go to the recruitment team, I think, for this. You know, they, they clearly were set a task in January to try and find defenders to shore up the defence. Paul Hockey McDonald were identified, they've come in, they've been exceptional. So that's a big tick in the box as far as the recruitment team goes. Um, it, it is, but I don't know if that puts them in a positive favour. I think it probably does overall. I mean, I think the thing is, everyone's looking at the defence of the recruitment in the summer in particular, defensively at Tony Stewart. And I think it's pretty clear that Tony Stewart was Jim Goodwin signing. Well, who signed Richardson? It's a different matter, I think. You hadn't thought about it, or no, no. I mean that. In a, I mean that in the sense that I, from I understand, and again, Lee Scott was here and talked us through it. Goodwin said he wanted attacking fullback, wingbacks who could get up and down the line. And when they did their data and crunching and data analysis, Richardson was a boy who came out far and away, like top of the kind of achievable, attainable players. It's not worked out for him. Um, not yet, anyway. Admittedly, maybe there's still something in there, but I don't see him getting a chance in a Barry Robson team. It is the it's the synergy of identifying good solid center backs and then you know, implementing them in a fashion where they're not being asked to do things they can't do. I'm sure that McDonald and Pollock would have played themselves into danger if they've been asked to play it from the back for the last yeah. ten games. But like say we've eliminated the risks. Let's get a goal kick. Let's get the ball away from our goal and see what we can do from there. Yeah, exactly. Right, move last one then. Um, Barry Robson. <laughs> um, I feel like every week we're having this discussion. Is he is he Robson in or Robson out? Um, not so much out, but just if it's the right thing to do. Gav's been on the Robson in train now for a while. Um, yep. Graham is very much in this still, I don't know if it's the right thing to do. It gets harder every week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like... Yeah, I know, I know. I know. Why are you looking for reasons not to give this man the job? <laughs> it's a really good run, but he's managed 10 games, is it? 80% win record. Uh, if he shut it down now, he'd be the Aberdeen's most successful manager <laughs> of all time. Uh, look, I think if you, if you give him the job, you can see a lot of people being happy with that and it makes a lot of sense because this run is excellent. If you don't, it's a really bold call and you can't then get some <laughs> fucking no mark or someone who's been riding the managerial gravy train. You've got to go chuck the checkbook at someone. You've got to go big. And hope to God that it works out because if in the first couple of games you haven't won, everyone's going to be pointing to the fact that you had a manager who's just had you know X games in a row, clean sheets, and you decide that he wasn't up to the job. So it's a really tough. He's probably made the decision trickier than the FMB thought it was going to be. It's kind of got to be his job now, doesn't it? For all the reasons you've just said, like I don't think. I can't see a scenario now where, where it's not his job. And there's part of me feels like the shooter just come out tonight and just said, right, Bad Robson's appointed as the new manager for the night and he's signed a whatever length of deal. Because looking at the table now, I think we're pretty much guaranteed 
I, I don't think to finish any lower than fourth now. And I think when he came in, fourth even seemed like a pipe dream. And the fact that we're now, it's it's in our hands to throw away third. And you're right, Graham. It, it, I even think a lot of people looking at this now, even the support, even if we lost like four out of the five games in the split, which I don't think will happen, but even if we did and we came fourth, I still think that there's enough credit in the bank there from the support to give them the job full time now. And you're right. I think it's the it's the massive issue is if they go, well, actually, thanks, Barry, and you've got us into Europe, and that's great, but we're going to give this job to this guy over here. And if said guy comes in and he has a sticky first two or three weeks in a new season, everyone's going to be like, we had this, lad. Why did we not bother? I I can't see being any other way than Barry Robson's gig now. I, I just can't see it. should also make it clear, we say Robson, it's got to be everyone. So yes. your favourite man, yes. Samsonite. Agnew, Liam Fox, it's got to be the whole mm-hmm. yep. the whole guy because I think this is where maybe things go wrong in the, the past. Everyone's like, oh, he's the manager, it's that guy. And it turns out actually, no, his number two was really quite a good coach and looked after the players and the manager almost like is the front up, takes the, the grief, which frees everyone else up to get after their job. So it's everyone. And if everyone wants to hang around and we can come to some sort of agreement, then it's it's really difficult to make a case to give it to someone else. I mean, to reaffirm, Steve Agnew reportedly has said that he is willing to stick around if Barry Robson is given the full-time job. Since Liam Fox has come in, we have not conceded a goal. So clearly he is some kind of defensive masterclass coach. And it was all Charlie Mulgrew's fault. And or yeah, Birigati's like, fault. Or Birigati's fault. Or Edwards. Or any other number of <laughs> United players. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like um, Jay Horter impressed... Craig Sampson has, I think, done some good work with Kelrus, especially since he's come back at the team. The setup is there. I mean, eight wins from 10 to recover the situation from where we were to where we are now. We're going to split in third places, ours to lose. It would be insanity for me, for the board to look anywhere other than the guy who has shown that he can adapt with the players he has, recruit well, implement them into a structure that's going to make us difficult to beat, difficult to score against. We're getting wins. I mean, it's all there. It's got it's got to be by Robson's job. Unless Chris Wilder is sacked by Watford in the next couple of days and we decide to go back to him. <laughs> well, thanks. That's not working uh, out too well down there. No, fuck that. He can go to Hearts if they want. Um, the thing is as well, it actually gives the, the FMB a nice easy out now as well because they can literally be like, well, he is clearly the outstanding candidate this time around based on what's happening. And... You know, we we don't look too stupid if we give him the job either. That's the thing, isn't it? Like no one's gonna sit. No one is gonna sit there now and go. I don't understand why. There's always that. someone. <laughs> Hi, Graham. Welcome <laughs> I, to the show. No, but yeah, I I know I know what you mean. If things had been mediocre and you're like they're just yeah couldn't get anyone with a penny pinching, but it's literally going as well as it could possibly go. I don't see how you you can't. But then to your point, why drag it out? Just do it now. What's really going to change in the next couple of games? And the sooner you do it, it just allows everyone to get after things and build. And even if players are maybe not sure, they're like, oh, I like working under Robson and everyone. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind. I'd hang about for another year. Yeah, exactly. You know, Paul uh, Clarks and some of these guys, and we'll probably come on to that in a minute or two. Um, whoever the the highest ranking representative of the football monitoring board was at Pataudry today, they should have been drafting a contract around this 80-minute mark to prepare for Barry Robson on the pitch at full time and make him all elite. I mean, all Aberdeen. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Right. There we go. Um, that's probably enough on that one. Um, Aberdeen 2, Rangers 0. Lovely. Sounds good, doesn't it? Definitely. It's been a wee bit too long. Speaking of which, I've just noticed, uh, just quickly before, I was going to say we'll move on, but let's quickly on this one. Al McGregor. Angry. He's the weirdest angry cunt in Scottish football, isn't he? He's a very angry man. I saw that in the aftermath of the second goal, he had a wee little lash out of Ryan Duncan as well, I noticed on the clips I was looking back. And he's a weirdly angry man. Get it right fucking up, you. Definitely the kind of guy that when people are organising a night out, they hope that he doesn't get wind of it. Because <laughs> you know he's going to turn up, mm-hmm. be a dick, start a fight, but somehow not be the one that gets punched. It'll be the quiet guy who's done nothing <laughs> for getting punched while McGregor just like fucks off home or something. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what his, I don't know what his problem is. He's a fucking idiot. Anyway, get right up here, Alan. That was funny as fuck today. On to other news from AB24 this week. Right, the Graham Shinney saga, I was going to talk about it, but let's be honest, <laughs> we've talked to death about this, haven't we? Um, I ended up with my mug on STV. Gav, you got dragged onto Sports Sound yesterday to talk about it. Yeah. Is there anything more to say? Let's see how the Jego appeal goes. Yes, situation goes. <laughs> By the way, is there a more Australian surname than Jego? Um, he has a tune on your didgeridoo, Jego. No, you're right, Gavin. I think you think you've think you've nailed it. To be fair, Graham, any thoughts with his Popey's Nerfect bumper sticker? Yeah, I, I have don't have any. Yeah, I don't have any words for that hasn't already been said. Anyway, let's go on then. Let's let's find it. it's all been talked about. As it turns out, the SFA it doesn't fucking matter anyway. So, in my second, get it right up here in the evening. Get it right up here. Um, Johnny Hayes signing a one year extension of his contract. That was a bit of a surprise. I thought this week. I, I wasn't surprised as such because I'm quite confident that Johnny Hayes will be about 50 and still playing left wing back for Aberdeen. <laughs> um, it's been a it's been a real mixed bag of a season like, for Johnny Hayes because I think when earlier in the campaign when he was playing um, as the kind of wide player of the three in behind Mionski, I thought he was playing very, very well. It looked a lot more like the Johnny Hayes that we remembered when he came back from that little spell uh, when he was out unavailable that started to look a little bit more like the John Hayes of the previous two years. And then, Leo, like almost every player in the starting 11, especially, uh, Robson coming in has just uh, given John Hayes a new lease of life as a player. Um, his his physical attributes still at the age he has is, is just incredible. I mean, his he's still got all the pace, all the work ethic, all the work rate, all the stamina to to do uh to put in a really good shift and i think the last couple of games he's he's really impressed he's a guy that's going to give absolutely everything to aberdeen every time he steps onto the pitch um another he even comes to another head knock today the guy is just indestructible um i'm 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 happy with it um i think he is a, a very experienced player um still has a lot to offer and he's just he's a of such a such a great role model for our young players, especially what you can achieve if you just look after yourself. Yeah, I, I was and am a little surprised, but I suppose sort of longer term into next season, you also can't really put a value on just having experienced players in and around. I mean, he's not going to play maybe every week, but like Gavin says, when he comes on, you've got confidence in him. Um, so, yes, a little bit of a surprise, but by no means unwelcome news. I want Johnny Hayes to get a, get a testimonial out of this. Does he get I one? Think, if it's uh, well, he would, he would need he would need one more year. But does does make. he deserve? Does he get one if it's split over two? I I think so. The rules for me, I'm a stickler on these things. 
than that. I, he just he, well, he, he, he deserves he, that for the five he'll plus five. He'll be giving five. Ramadan one if he goes in the summer. So I don't really ah, see how he will be predicted here. Yeah, just, he stays for a season. Give it to him whatever he wants. Anyway, we move on. Yes, a Lone Watch. On to Lone Watch. The biggest talking point of the weekend, of course, with the exception of uh, Aberdeen's incredible 2-0 win over the Rangers this afternoon, was, was the sending off of uh, Jimmy Jago for Hibs. And who was involved in that one? That's right, it was Conor McLennan at St. Johnston because he started for St. Johnston as ex-Aberdeen alumni Steve McLean took charge of the Perth side for the second time because uh, he, he once did it due to COVID. Uh, McLennan lasted until the 73rd minute in this one. And as I've said, his most notable contribution in the game was rolling around on the floor after the Jago red card incident. So there we go. Less said about that, the better, I think. Uh, Kieran Nguyenia at Wraith Rovers back in the starting lineup, and he lasted the full 90 minutes as Wraith's season continued to wind down as they were beaten by one goal to nil at Capelo by the second angriest man in Scottish football, Dougie Emery's Greenick Morton. Jack Milne, another 90 minutes for him as Kelty sought out a Desmond with FC Just Edinburgh. In League One, Aaron Reid and Evan Towler. Towler again missing out due to injury. Reid started, played the full 90, scored. It's his fourth goal in just six starts for Elgin City so far, but it wasn't enough. Elgin going down by three goals to one. It's Stranraer who jettisoned the third most angry man in Scottish football, Jamie Hamill, uh, earlier in the week. That was in League Two. Albion Rovers and Bonnie Rose picking up wins this weekend, which means Elgin are now just one point above Albion Rovers at the foot of the table. Kevin Hanratty for for Martin back to the bench for him. It doesn't look like he came off the benches for Martin closed out their high league campaign with a two on win over the Choo Choo's. Anthony Stewart uh, out the match day squad altogether as the Dons of Milton Keynes variety went down by one goal to nil to the man who preceded him as captain at Aberdeen Football Club Scott Brown's Fleetwood Town MK Do- MK Dons now with no wins in their last six games and I hate to say it. Correlation's not causation, but every one of those six games have been since Anthony Stewart's come back into the team. Um, They're now only two points above the relegation places in League Two. Dean Campbell at Stevenage, out of the matchday squad altogether as Stevenage went down by one goal to nil at Mansfield Town. Stevenage now only one point ahead of Stockport and Carlisle in the automatic promotion places in League Two. Uh, Vicente Bajan was out boating, it looked like on Instagram over the course of last week. So, And it didn't look as though it was the Tory battery. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and speaking of the battery, Daddy Povara, the Charleston battery, played the full 90 as the battery. And look at, we looked at it in the pub earlier on. Daddy Povara's quad, quads, man. Oof. I'll tweet that out later on. That's a man who's been hitting the gym. Let's put it that way, since he's been back stateside. Anyway, the battery maintaining their unbeaten start to the USL Championship season as they ground out a nil-nil draw with Louisville City FC. Sounds like a barn burner. All I can say about that is I hope they play it on a soccer park this time. Fingers crossed. On to the young team. Third defeat in the row for the young team as Hamilton Aki saw a 2-0 win over the Dons at a windswept Cormac Park on Friday. I will talk about that later on because I was wanting to open up the floodgates a little bit for a listener's corner. The women's team, <clears throat> week off um, for them this week. And the big news for the women's team it was the news that Millie Uckert, who is... <laughs> it's like we're cursed. Graham, tell us, what happened every time you got a player's name on the back of your shirt? They inevitably became a shite or most likely got sold. Indeed. So this season we sponsored uh, uh, one of the women's players this season. Uh, the, the player that we initially sponsored has since moved on. 
um, we then were uh, offered the opportunity to sponsor a second player um, in place, and we chose Miliocker. Miliocker is away to Florida in the summer to join a four-year scholarship program with Jacksonville University's women's soccer program. So there we go. We'll need to find another player to sponsor next year. Uh, Millie, of course, making her debut last season. She's made 24 appearances this season. Scored twice as the Quines beat Dungeon United 4-3 during the week. So there we go. All the best to Miliocker and her adventures at Jacksonville University. She might even be able to hook up with Tony Khan in the Jacksonville area, one would imagine. Maybe Milliocker is all elite. And just in case you're worried, Billy, we, we won't sponsor you should the opportunity arise at Jackson. <laughs> and um, do you want to do listeners' corner now or do you want to do it after the break? What do you want to do? Uh, to be honest, it's 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, so I don't know what to do. The people say what the people say, Graham. It's 100 episodes, we're doing it. Do you want to do it before or after? Let's do it now. Let's do it now. We're going to open up the floodgates. Here we go. Graham's hoping it's all going to be yes or no questions. And I'll try and make them easy for you, Graham. I'll try. All right. Graham just looks pained by this whole thing. Is the hangover kicking? Is that what's going on? No, I feel fine because I had to walk home. So <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Let's have a wee looky. Here we go. 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 It's good that you're prepared. Sorry. 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 Right. Um, the Dawn at the Dawn 1903 asks, when do they offer Robson the role permanently? I think we've already covered that. Um, what about McCrory going to Bristol? We've already covered that, so that's fine. <laughs> Sean AFC THFC, not a good afternoon for him. I'm presuming Tottenham, that, that THFC refers to Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, what did he say? He said, how desperate was Kenny McIntyre to throw out the McCrory story seconds after we beat his team? I was not listening to Sports End, so I can't okay. comment on that. Pretty desperate, I think, is the answer to that. Uh, Colin Struthers at Colin Struthers. Only saw a glimpse of it, but did McGregor try to kick out an Aberdeen player celebrating the second goal? We covered it a minute ago. Yes, he did. Not so much of a kick out, but he tried to give Ryan Duncan a little bit of something. That's right. That's 41-year-old Al McGregor trying to give 19-year-old Ryan Duncan a little bit of afters. Anyway. Um, Maybe Ryan Duncan called him like Gramps on the way past. Derek Beagree at Beagree316 says, and I have teed that up, and it's good timing because my wife's here. Come here, come here, come here. Derek Beagley's asking, will I name my next child after Ramadani? So how does Ilber sound to you, Sarah? His first name is Ilber. Is Ilber sound like a good name for a child? Wilbur. <laughs> no. Well, there we go. I thought that'd be much more engaging podcasting than it turned out to be, but no. Is that not the name of Ricky and Bianca's dog in EastEnders? Yeah, I thought so. What's that, Sarah? <laughs> okay, she's blaming the fact she's hungover for that. Never mind. Um, Are there many Ilbers in Inverurie? I thought there was many Ilbers in Inverurie, so I think that'd be a first. I could see I could see a little Ilber. No? Okay, never mind. Um, Jam M at J4MRU. Robson, Robson on his team. Today's when Ramadani defends Robson again. Ultras. Oh, he's just giving us a list of things to say, talk about. Uh, there's way too much for that. Uh, Craig Hunter at Hunter Two Stars. The general siege mentality is developing. We've been a, a divided bunch of fans for decades, but there feels like there's a togetherness and again, pro- positive results obviously helps too. We kind of touched on this earlier on, but I agree about this a lot. I think there's definitely a bit of a, in a weird way, I think the SFA, if there if there was some weird conspiracy thing going on, if they thought that banning Shinny for four games was going to hinder us, I think it might turn the other way around and give us something else to be just a bit ragey about. You know, for the last. Um... I think back especially to, you know, the the Scottish Cup defeat at Fir Park last season when the players went off and were given all kinds of abuse after that and leading into the season as well. I mean, there's been a real disconnect between the sport and the and the fans, um, as far as kind of maybe what we see on the on the pitch. And um I think there was rightfully questions of 
mentality and ability and the desire, especially in that three three game week long spell that cost Jim Goodwin his job ultimately, um, in such a quick space of time. Um, it's it's personified by someone like Matty Pollux, who's been here for you know two three months, um, come with no prior connection to Scottish football, let alone Aberdeen, and it's just bought into it. It's what Graham said earlier. It's you see players on the pitch that you can you can relate to they they are embodying how you would play on the pitch if you were lucky enough to wear the shirt um it's been yeah the results the performances the good stuff is all it's all great but yeah creating that connection between the fan base and the player team again it's um it's been yeah it's been really pleasing i agree <laughs> graham just wants this over with <laughs> um joe elric at joseph elric 19 should Paul at Clarkson and Shinny be put on permanent deals? Well, yes. if it was easy, yeah, just <laughs> if it were my choice, then yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be delighted with that. Yeah, I'm all up for that. Um, whether Dave Cormack's got big enough pockets for, or deep enough pockets to get Pollock and Clarkson is obviously a different question. Um, would you offer new contracts to Ramadani, McDonald, and Book? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Even to Ramadani, Gav. Reduced terms. <laughs> uh, Cameron at Camera09. Find FC. every time he, lo- he he gets fined every time he loses the ball. Will be a it's, net profit. Okay. Cameron's asking the possibility of us winning the cinch next season. <laughs> uh I think Celtic have currently got on this, like on plus, this trend. I think Celtic have currently got a plus 78 goal difference and are currently 39 points clear of us. There's maybe maybe two seasons. Yeah, but if he continues this trend, then, you know... We can maybe make up the gap in that time. Graham, you think you're going to stick a tenner on this to win the, the cinch next season? Maybe a pound. <laughs> okay, nice. Um, McLean at DandyMac99. Can we carry this form over into next season, providing we can keep players such as Scales, McDonald, and Miofsky? Maybe even a trophy, perhaps? It all entirely depends on which of the players that we have currently are in the team next year, and then how we go about recruiting replacements for the ones who will, will not be here. That's a very obvious answer. Well, I will maybe say to that is with the recruitment in the short time that Robson and Co have been here, seems to be able to, I guess everyone seems to be able to identify some decent players and get them to gel. So it gives me a bit of confidence that if he is in charge for next season, yeah, it's not like he's built a team, but he's got a bit of experience in getting some guys in, getting it to work that, you know, maybe a little optimistic that why couldn't, why couldn't they repeat it? What I'd also say to that is that you've got us winning games in a lot of different manners. And yeah. when it comes to cup runs, especially, that's, that's, what you uh, need to do. that's, a, that's a huge advantage. Indeed, absolutely, definitely. Um, Andrew at Funky Beat 5, uh, what do we need in the summer recruitment window? That's way too big a question to ask us now. Uh, Gav at Gav E is asking, if we can just have one big fucking yass for two hours, that'll do nicely. Gav, do you want to take the floor? I mean, this show has more or less been a big yass up to this point anyway. Oh, but give the people what the people want, Gab. Come on. Um, I'll only do it if you guys do it with me. Okay, I'll do it with you. Come on then. On right. three. One, two, three. Fucking yes! There we go. Right. Um, and Gav, Gav, you can just stretch that for two hours. Yep. <laughs> Beautiful. Throw that on our Patreon. <laughs> Martin Smith at Martin Smith 31. The immense change in attitude by the players. They love to fight for Robson. He's instilled pride again in playing for the club. Don't I can argue with that. Nope. No, no, not at all. Uh, it is quite impressive how he's gone about it in a relatively short period of time. Uh, so, yeah, fair play. 
lovely stuff. Captain Dandy at Stevie G nineteen seventy eight. Is Jim Goodwin the worst Aberdeen manager ever? Uh, no. There's some competition. <laughs> no, I don't think he is either. I just think he made a royal tit of this. Anyway, there we go. Um, Rory Stewart. Regardless of where we finish in the league now, are we all firmly in the Barry Robson in camp? Yes. I think Graham's the one who's. I mean, I was. I was already in it anyway. You I'm, were already I'm, in, Gav. This is not a revelation. I'm in. I'm. I've been in the tent, pissing out for some some weeks now. <laughs> is Graham still damp, or is he in the it's, tent? I don't. It's really, really difficult to make a case for anyone else with the form that we are that we are in and the, and the sort of turnaround and attitude uh, and everything like that. So yeah, I'm not really. I'm, I can't really see a case where you wouldn't. Now give him the job because Graham's in. Graham is in. Well, like you, like you say, if you if you don't, who do you actually? You're gonna have <laughs> you to get, give it to. I know, like a a blockbuster name, aren't you? So that everyone's like, oh, okay, that's incredible. I see what you've done there. If you just get some no mark, even myself included, and say, well, what was the point of that? I I feel like this is the summer where unless Pep decides, you know what, I want to put to bed the whole idea about I'm not a good manager and I'm gonna go and take on a project like an Aberdeen. We can't afford a checkbook manager. <laughs> then, you know, I don't sure what else we do. So I think we are now all firmly in the Robson and camp and let's just hope to God it works out for us. Uh, the way it's going at Bayern, Tommy Tuchel might be available again. <laughs> true, true. Uh, Alan Stobie's asked us to talk about Aberdeen. I don't know if he's being sarcastic or just doesn't listen to the show. Who knows? I don't blame him if he doesn't. Um, Calvin Hughes asking, would you wait until the summer or would you just give him the job now? I think we'll just give him the job now, to be honest. I think it would allow us to plan for the season ahead to be honest I can't see a scenario where he doesn't get the job now unless the wheels fall off catastroph- catastrophically but even then even then I think arguably he will have achieved what his you know, whatever his objective was and all that's going to happen if you don't announce it shortly or you announce who it's going to be is guys who are maybe on the fence about staying but like Robson yeah will have to you know like McDonald for example that contract is going to have to start looking and I'm sure he is he's got his agent on it so that might be the deciding factor. Why would you be dithering? Yeah. Okay. Um, we we made him the the manager until the end of the season. If we see that, it's the most long term thinking that I've seen Aberdeen execute in two years. So <laughs> yeah. I'm happy enough keeping it that way. Um, obviously things are being planned for next season. We just talked about Johnny Hayes getting a new contract, so there is some level of autonomy between Robson and the the rest of the football department uh, as far as the long term strategy goes. Uh, just keep things as they are and then I know it's from the end of the season uh, Scott Shields is asking when is Ramadani getting a statue it's already getting built in the back garden mate <laughs> oh, I sent him in the water feature I thought that was the Josh McGinnis statue uh, well we've had to adapt it um, Ali Cinnamon asks this is, this is a good question I think we've maybe touched on it briefly earlier on but mentality and belief how utterly priceless is that is that the real difference between Robson and what he's given us we haven't exactly played well in inverted commas careful now we're in trouble again since we played hearts and we were poor today until we took the lead yet when we did take the lead we somehow felt in, uh, we somehow felt inevitable we would win it yeah mentality's yeah. huge isn't it let's it's, be honest it's, 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 he's absolutely correct I mean we we had to face up to a, a different type of challenge against Ross County last last week we the players had to maintain a lot of concentration because Rangers they do have some players that can do some quite neat interchanges and um, you know you can find yourself looking one way and the ball goes the other way um graham has mentioned that we've mentioned it countless times that you know when the ball lands in our box it inevitably finds its way to uh, an opposition player with acres of space to just 
effectively put the ball into an empty net. Um, now it's like, as I said, it's players are just throwing their bodies on the line to 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 defend our box, to defend our goal, to be that much more difficult to, to play against. Um, the mentality it's it, it's difficult to put into words. The shift in this, you know, there's such infinitely small period of time ultimately. Um, and yeah, it's another tick in the box for old Barry Robs. Um, Ian, where does it go? Ian uh, at Tails with nineteen eighty eight. Liam Scales and Liam Scales only. Should we sign him on a permanent deal now? Uh, I maintain my stance that if we are playing with a back three and he plays at the left side of the back three, one hundred percent. Would you be able to afford to? Uh, well, well, I guess his question is if you could. Uh, uh, well, you can split up that McCrory money. Yeah. I think, well, there's probably not about, I mean, over the course of the season, has he been, you know, obviously not been as good as he has been the last few weeks. But having said that, if you've now decided this is the way we're going to play and he's going to get a run, you know, in a in a role that seems to suit him, he's in own quantity. It's obviously less of a gamble than picking out someone else from another league. So probably, yeah, he probably would. But I would just question how easy Celtic would be to deal with. Uh, I don't. I think Celtic would be relatively easy to deal with, as far as you know. They've they've obviously brought in another couple of centre backs in the in the January window. It'll probably still put Liam Scales to market, and then it's whether we can compete with yeah. um, maybe a championship, maybe a championship team, or you know. Oh, some... But then if Scales has enjoyed himself, yeah. What I would, yeah, yeah. What I'd throw in there is that uh, at one point in the game today, he makes a clearance. He gives a little fist pump to the to the red shed. I think he's clearly enjoying the life at Aberdeen, where he could have easily you know chucked it. Yeah, in January when people were giving him all kinds of pelters, um, he's, yeah, I think I get him. Says if he's within our price range, we can make it happen. Then I would, yeah, I would sign him. I'll tell you what, if you got two mil, two and a half mil for Ross McCrone, you had to chuck a million at scales, and you were going to get performances like that out of him, and then you had a million and a half to find the replacement for McCrone out of you know, out of Europe somewhere. That might not be bad business for the football club, to be fair. Um, let's wait and see what happens on that one. And then last but not least, um, Paul Darcy. Um, the fact that nobody left until five minutes after the game. Brilliant. We touched on it earlier on. The support today was fantastic. I think Brian Pataudry. And um, <laughs> that tragic prick, you and Cameron. All I want to say to Aberdeen fans tonight is, listen, don't get involved with shit with you and Cameron. He's a fucking idiot. And he's just there trying to wind you up. And the more you just ignore him, the better it is for your mental health if you just ignore that. So let's not get involved in it. Just let him be. He's going to have to keep looking upwards at the fact that Aberdeen are looking downwards at the moment on Hearts and we scalped his big team today. So there we go. Who is he? We have proven Michael Beale right. Indeed. We are Ali the third best team in the country. All right. That'll do us. Yeah. Let's move on to the break. Join us on the other side for part one of our interview with Russell Rusty Anderson. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Siberia Bar and Hotel on Belmont Street. Aberdeen and with May Day fast approaching join the gang for the biggest day in Siberia's yearly calendar on Sunday the 30th of April from midday featuring music from Home Alone, All Night Passion and much much more. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. Before we move on to part one of our interview with Russell Anderson, 
Just a quick shout out to those of you who have made contributions to the ABZFP Beer and Coffee Fund this week, including Bill. Bill. Scott Lavery. Scott. Lavery. Mark Robertson. We acknowledge you, Mark. You're the one. A, a particularly generous donation of cheese from Scott this evening, I did notice. So thank you, Scott. Much appreciate that. Um, we see all of you. Your bread is absolutely appreciated. If you'd like to help keep us fueled in beers or coffee or running costs, then please head on over to ko-fi.com forward slash ABZ Football Podcast. The link is in the description. Shout us that beer or coffee. It is much appreciated. We're whittling our way down towards the end of the Gothenburg um, challenge. I don't have time to go into it right now. We'll do it next week. I promise, promise, promise. Um, I think, Graham, you must be nearly there. It'll be done tomorrow or Tuesday. If he walks uh, to the if he walks to the end of his driveway and back, it'll be done. It'll be done. Cool, good. I'm nearly there. Gav, you're probably still, I don't know where you're like Dundee or something, mate. Um, is Gothenburg on the coast? It doesn't really matter. It's not in Scotland. And I'm not sure you've left Scotland. Uh, if, it, if it's 150 kilometers inland from the coast of Sweden, then I should be in Sweden. Okay, good. There we go. You've got 150 to go. Yep. Okay, good. You're doing, you're all right. And you've got, got this. You've got this. You're fine. Give or take 20 days. So we'll talk about this next week again. Anyway, let's move on to this one. So episode 100, what other way to market than to open up the interview section again one last time? This one, it's a special one for us. It is, of course, part one of our chat with a man who is an Aberdeen fan, grew up in the city, Went on to live the dream, not just playing for Aberdeen, not just scoring for Aberdeen, went on to captain the club twice. He is, of course, the last captain of Aberdeen Football Club to win a major trophy, and it's coming over to 10 years now, which is really, really depressing, but never mind. Is, of course, the one and only Russell Anderson. Russell Anderson, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How's it going? It's going well, thanks. Not too bad. Thanks for having me on. No, listen, the pleasure is all ours. Um, It's going to mark our landmark 100th episode to have this first uh, part of interview with you. So we'll listen, we'll, go, we'll we'll start at the very start. Born in Aberdeen, October 1978. Just talk us through, Russell, kind of your upbringing in the city and I guess your earliest memories of playing the game. Yeah, uh, I was brought up west end of Aberdeen, Louisville Avenue, which is just off Great Western Road. So went to school at Ashley Road Primary. Um, first kind of... Memories of playing football would have been probably like everybody else, just playing for the school team. Uh, Champion Street as well, uh, yes. which was the thing back in the day. The first experience I can remember, the proper exposure to that was actually, I played up a couple of years. We had a good team at that point. We got to the final, got beaten by Dennis Minus of all people and his team. Yeah. I, think, what was, uh, I can't remember because they all had like really different names, didn't they? Yeah. Um, so Denzel's team and they, they ended up I think we drew with them in the final and then it went to a replay and they beat us comfortably I think it was 3-0 um, so the, the final I'm sure yeah the final was at Pataudry that'd be right yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. was a very big pitch when you were only <laughs> primary five um, but it was a really good experience from what you do remember of it um, so that was kind of early in terms of the school side of it. Um, first proper kind of boys club team, I would say, was King Street back in the day. I'm not even sure there's ever King Street still. don't think there is, is there? No, no, no. So um, I signed for them after a brief spell playing. It was the local team, Seafield, actually. Um, went to King Street and I was there for a few years. And we had a pretty good team, to be honest. Uh, we were always challenging up the top end of the league. 
along with Deeside, uh, who had a good team at that point, as did Dice. And they were the, the three teams, um, at my age group anyway, that were always up the top end. I was at King Street for a few years, and then I actually moved to Dice uh, for my last couple of years before I ended up signing for Aberdeen. We'll come on to your youth career through Aberdeen in a minute, but obviously as well, well documented that you grew up as an Aberdeen fan. So what's the first game you can remember being at, at Pataudry and who was your favourite player growing up? Well, I don't specifically, but it was funnily enough, I was speaking to Ian Jess last week and it always reminds me, Ian Jesse was probably the one that I looked at when he broke through. Because um, my first cup final, I remember, was when we beat Celtic in, was it 1990? Yeah. The penalties. That was my first cup final. It was my first experience at Hamden. Dad took me down uh, before Hamden had been refurbed. Uh, prior to that, I don't remember my first game as such, but I do remember being in um, the Markland Road end and watching a few games. And the one vivid memory I do remember was when Charlie Nicholas was there. And uh, it was round about the time where there was a lot of speculation that he was wanting to leave. Uh, and you, I always just remember the supporters singing Charlie Must Stay. So that was round about the time where you started to kind of take proper notice of what was going on. Um, round about that time. Um, and like I say, when, when Jesse came into the team um, in Hans Hill House and that, and you were looking at it at that point there thinking, gee, we've got we've got a right good team. So obviously I missed the, the glory years, so to speak. But when they were coming off the back of that with um, Alex Smith, uh, Jockey Scott and Drew um, that was probably the time where I started to really kind of pay attention and take note Yeah, now we were, I was talking about that with somebody um, yesterday, just when you look back now, the signing of Hans Heelhouse a guy who just won the European Cup you know, the season before you know, it's, and you talk to youngsters now and you like to put that in context, that's like Aberdeen signing Kareem Benzema now, you know, it's just incredible, completely different times. I'm just yeah. glad to see it was the Portsoy Pelly that's uh, also up there as your as your favourite. I mean, you, you talk about Hans and you look at the transfer fee back then, I think it was 650000 that they paid on him. You think about how much that's now. Yeah. The, the amount of time, that, the years that they went without spending any money on transfer fees because of where Scottish football was for such a long period of time, you look back and you think, wow, that was a that Charlie Nicholas, there were some really um, big statement signings at that point there. Um, and they were good, good players. Absolutely. So coming through your youth career, you just touched on there, kind of ended up at Dice for a little bit, even in those honking blue and white hoops. Um, how did you end up at Aberdeen? Though? How did that one come about? So it was the it was the usual kind of process back then that if you were playing boys club, the scouts would be out watching the games. If you happen to stand out, then I'm, I'm guessing that they would come and watch you a few times before they maybe invited you down to Pataudry. There was a group of us that kind of covered up. Um, it wasn't just one age group, as you would find now with the academy. I think there must have been about maybe 25, 30 of us, ranging over two, three different years. And we would all go down to Pataudry on a Tuesday night, train for what, an hour and a half on the, the car park just out the front of the main stand. And it was the likes of Drew and Jockey, um, Neil Cooper, would be the ones that were actually training you. So the standard was really good. Um, they pushed you because obviously they wanted to improve the, the standard across the board. And because you were playing with players maybe one, two years above yourself, you kind of felt like you had to 
um, reach that level to obviously to try and um, impress enough that you would you get kept around. Um, so I mean, you, you think back and you compare it now. It's never going to happen now because the academy has become so big. You've got teams at every age. If you think about the first team assistant manager, first team coach actually taking a group of young players, it just shows how much it's kind of moved on in that time. And it's happened at every club, so it just is what it is. It's progress, if you want to call it that. But the, the, the level of the training was really good. Um, and like I say, because you were playing against or playing with against players maybe one, two years above you, you needed to kind of grow up pretty quickly and, and reach that standard. You just talked about a number of you know key uh key guys who were involved i guess in the youth setup as well Aberdeen at that time and you know i remember the likes of chip mcclelland and that um as well um kicking about but who would you say when you were kind of coming through your youth career at Aberdeen would have been your biggest influences it would have been drew definitely um i was fortunate or unfortunate enough some people <laughs> might say that was the reason i got signed i know one a couple of people did drew lived next door to me so <laughs> um and in a way, if you know Drew, he he's a moan, but he's a moan for the right reasons. Um, he wanted the best out of you, and he was always trying to drive the standards higher. Um, so from that point of view, there was no hiding place. Um, so I would say Drew was definitely the, the main one for me, given the fact that, like I say, he did live next door. Um, <laughs> there was uh, no escaping it. First team debut comes in a, it's a testimonial match at Bucky Thistle, July 1996. Um a first competitive start, though, for the first team on the 4th of January, 1997. A home match against Dunfermline Athletic in the league. Yeah. Bacon would have been first team manager at the time. Yeah. How do you remember, how how you found out that you were going to be starting that one? It was about just over an hour before kickoff. Because I'd been in the squad for a few games. I'd been on the bench. I'd been in, training in and around the first team for a while. But I hadn't actually had any minutes um, and on that Saturday I got called into the manager's office Roy had said Stuart had failed a fitness test on his knee so he was going to throw me in so I mean to be honest it was probably not a bad thing because it didn't give me a chance to think about it there was just um, time for the team talk and basically get thrown in uh, which I suppose is not probably a bad thing um, the game itself I actually remember First half doing absolutely fine. It was nil-nil at half time. I think. There wasn't much in the game, but I thought I'd kind of started well enough. Was working my way into it, and it was all good. Got in at half time, nil-nil. Second half came, and again, things were going all right until I made an arse of a clearance at the back post. Um, the ball fell to, I cannot remember who it was, Dunfermline, and he ended up scoring the first goal. We lose 2 nil. So I've kind of walked in, off the pitch thinking, well, I, I didn't actually think about the fact that I'd made my debut. I more thought about the fact that I'd actually yeah, made the mistake, which cost the first goal mm-hmm. and ultimately probably cost the game, to be honest, because the team was, um, it had been on a pretty good run prior to that, but that was the starting kind of period of a, a bit of a, a, a dip in, in form, I would say. So that was probably... Well, I know it was. It was like at the forefront of my mind, um, thinking, well, that's my debut. Um, and it didn't actually pan out the way I would have wanted it to. After that, though, you, you did become a, a regular starter in the side up until the back end of that season. I mean, were you surprised? I know that Stuart was obviously going through a lot of injury problems at that period of time, but were you kind of surprised yourself just to 
suddenly get that run of games because like you say you've been in the squad but hadn't had any minutes yeah. to suddenly go from just you know being around the place to regular starter every week it's a it's a massive leap isn't it yeah it was and I, I was probably I was surprised if I got to the end of the season I look back from where I was prior to that game against Dunfermline I wouldn't have thought I'm going to play every game between then and the end of the season so that was that was a, a surprise in itself um I think to be honest you're playing on adrenaline as much as anything that you've been thrown in as a young boy into the first team and actually loved it, even though, like I say, um, the form towards the end of that season for the team wasn't brilliant. Um, remember, I think we had Hibs away in the Scottish Cup. Yeah. I think we drew, was it two each for them? Two-two, yep. Yeah. And then the replay, I forget what the score was. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, looking back, that end of that kind of season um, it was more than I could have actually anticipated from where we were at that point before I got the call up for the first game Who would have been the guys in the dressing room um, that you kind of looked up to for support and guidance I guess during that early spell You know the, the one that I'll kind of think about and this was kind of prior towards getting into the first team was that period where I was playing for the reserves and back then the reserves did actually involve a lot of first team players because the squad was a much, was much bigger than it is now. They could afford to carry a bigger squad. So you had quite a few experienced players. Paul Kane was actually really good for the young boys at that point. And Kano had um, had come in and he'd done well for a while, but then things I don't know what happened. Um the manager decided he wanted to go down a different route. Anyway, Kano was no longer um part of the first team deemed to be surplus to requirements. So he ended up um, playing regularly with the reserves so when you had a few of the younger boys coming through Kano was actually really good in terms of just getting you out of your shell um, and mm. just bringing you on a little bit so I, I do remember from that point that spell where you were actually in the reserves trying to break into the first team training <clears throat> games that kind of stuff Kano was good Aberdeen finished that season in Sixth spot, um, going into the 97 98 season, it's it's fair to say you're now well and truly part of the first team picture, although it's not a vintage season for Aberdeen by any stretch of the imagination. A 5 0 defeat at Tanadice, Dean Windass getting sent off three times. That one sees Roy Aitken eventually dismiss. Now, that's obviously your first experience of a manager being sacked, given as well as the guy who gave you your first team debut. How, how did you kind of take that? How did that, how did that one feel? Well, you're right. It's, I mean, I've seen it happen plenty of times since. <laughs> I may have been responsible for some of them, but you, you, you've never experienced it before. So it is, it's difficult to take, especially like you say, Roy gave me my debut. Funnily enough, I bumped into Roy a couple of weeks ago, actually. He's looking as good now as he was um, 20 odd years ago. Um, but I had a lot of time for Roy. I thought he, had a re- he was a great character, personality, and um, so you were going into that game against Dundee United, I think deep down basically knowing because the results hadn't been good, this was a big game for us. So to lose it in the nature that we did, and obviously with what happened with Dino, um, that kind of thing, we didn't give ourselves any kind of chance to go and win that game when you lose a man so so early in the game, effectively. So you do feel it. Um, and I know that it can be thrown at players a lot about how the players maybe need to look at themselves when a manager kind of loses their job and it's not you don't like to generalise because there will be some players feel it more than others but when you're a young boy you've just come through 
the manager's given your debut and not long after that he's been given the sack, then there's no getting away from it. You, you do feel it. And um, any time the manager loses a job, the football club is a very kind of, well, I would say the majority of times, um, the, the morale can be quite low, understandably, for, for a period of time until you kind of then realise, well, at the end of the day, he's been given the sack for a reason. You need to turn things round. If you don't, then obviously things will continue in the same form. So um, you, I did feel for Roy. I felt that for, like, for, 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 for every manager, to be honest, but especially for him giving my debut. Keith Birkinshaw takes caretaker charge for a wee spell and then Alex Miller is ultimately appointed. Um, what was your relationship like with Alex Miller? Alex was a very different personality to Roy, I would say. <laughs> I think that was a, a fair way of putting it. Um, I mean, he'd come in having managed at Hibs and been number two at Scotland for a long, long time. So he um, his CV was pretty good, to be honest. And that was the, the point that... Um, Ian was obviously back, and I actually re- remember that when uh, it hasn't been that I can't remember any other time thinking when a player is signed for a club that I would have thought, yeah, good signing, can't wait to play with him, kind of thing. But as a young boy, having previously watched Jesse being my favourite player when he came back, I was yeah, I was delighted actually. Um, like I say, Alex was a very different kind of character to Roy that. Um, he was more about the, the, the tactical side of the game. Um, and, I mean, we started this that season pretty well, to be honest. We beat Celtic 3-2. Mark Perry, big Fred, scored one um, in his defensive midfield role for that game. Um, Craig Hignett started well around about that time. So we, we looked... Um, I think it was after three three games we'd won the first three we were sitting top of the league and then the wheels fell off massively. Um, so, and I think that was probably some of the players find it a bit more challenging having Alex as manager just for the the relationships as maybe as much as anything I would say um, with how he like spoke to the players um, in terms of that man management side of it. I would say as a young boy, I was still very young. So you just keep your head down and you keep working away. Um, I would say that was a noticeable difference between them. I think uh, when we spoke to Ian, I think he thought he'd escaped Alex Miller when he left Coventry and then came back to Aberdeen and Alex followed him in the door. It was like, what the fuck's going on here? Like, unbelievable. I think as well, when we spoke to Jesse as well, he he was, I don't think he took too kindly to having to do the uh, early morning up at the, uh, was it the, up at the helicopter uh, survival centre. Yeah, that was um, pre-season like we hadn't done before. There were, what did we do? Four four sessions a day, um, of which the first one was six o'clock. And there'll probably be people looking at this thinking, and, um, which I completely agree with now that I'm in a different line completely. But um, yeah, it was an early start in the pool, um, the old RGIT centre in King Street, um, which was cold, to put it mildly. Um, went down like a lead balloon with some of the players. Um, and then training, I think it was three sessions after that um, during the day. Then we went back to do weights. Then you were out for your what you would probably class as your normal first session. And then we were away home uh, for a sleep. You were back in at four o'clock. So there were long days. They were quite intense. Um, I've got to be brutally honest. I can't remember if it actually helped us 
I think looking at it now, when you see us having won the first three games, I've played in pre-seasons where they've been an absolute nightmare. You win your first competitive game and you're off and running and nobody thinks about it. I've also played in pre-seasons where you've had a really good pre-season, you've lost your first game and then it kind of carries on the other way. So I don't think there's any rhyme or reason to it um, a lot of the time. It was very different to what I'd um, experienced before, to be honest. So um, <laughs> it wasn't repeated, I don't think. <laughs> um, you kind of touched on it there. I mean, the season gets off to a flyer. A win at Dundee, then the win at home to Celtic. Craig Hignett and Ian Jess are dovetailing really well. All looks like it's going to be rosy. Um, then, as you say, the kind of wheels come off. Uh, Craig Hignett departs back down south again pretty swiftly. Ultimately, Alex Miller ends up um, departing midway through that season. Paul Hegarty takes charge on an interim basis before he's then replaced by Ebscovedale ahead of the following season. Now, I guess, firstly, were you surprised that Paul Hegarty didn't get the job on a permanent basis at the time? Because he, he did a decent job coming in and kind of steadying things. Mm-hmm. I, I am to an extent because everything that was kind of leading us to believe that Heggy was going to get uh, kept on following the end of the season. Um, we had a bad last result against Hearts home game. I think did we lose six two to them? Five two six two, which I don't know if that had a bearing on what the the decision and the outcome was for for next season. Um, so I've got no idea where they were in terms of their thought process and their recruitment. Um, but like I say, looking back to it, to all intents and purposes, I think we were under the impression that Heggie had done enough and he would be given an, an extended kind of deal. And then all of a sudden um, that didn't happen and they were recruiting Eb Skovdal, which was a totally different kind of approach mm-hmm. to what Heggie would have brought to the to the party or what he did for that period he was there. Of course, there's a little bit of... Um parallels with what's happening at the moment at Aberdeen from that perspective uh, we're talking on the 21st of March so Aberdeen obviously with your former teammate Barry Robson in interim charge doing well and, and probably giving the board a bit of something to chew over ahead of what they're going to do um, going forward you just touched on obviously it's it's Ebscovedale is the man who's selected this time around by the board the, 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 the club's first ever uh, foreign manager what were your initial impressions of, of Eb? <laughs> um, when you think about that that was Roy Aitken Keith Birkinshaw, although granted it was only for a very short period of time, Alec Miller, Paul Hegarty, so four managers, two permanent, two interim, in the space of what three seasons? Three seasons. Yeah. It's not great, is it? <laughs> so you're seeing an awful lot of um, different characters and different styles in terms of training and the way they um, they wanted the team to play. Therefore what players they wanted to bring in. And I think that's the, the challenge and always the danger. The team's not doing well and the, the, the board feel that they need to make a change, then, OK, that's their prerogative. But you then have to think about the bigger picture in terms of, OK, well, if a new manager comes in and he completely changes the style of play, he looks at the squad and thinks, I'm not having you, I'm not having you, I need my own players in here. It's a massive, um, massive change. Um and that's what happened when Ebby came in. If you look at it, it was such a high turnover of players. I can only imagine what was part of the appeal was maybe a different scouting network, players that we maybe wouldn't have had access to before from overseas. Um, and that's what kind of, I would say, was 
a mark of the time that he was there, especially in the, the early months. There was such a, a regular flow of players coming in, trialists. Honestly, every Monday you had a new trialist coming in and they'd be there for the week. And it, there was a standing joke um, that who we got this week that um, you would have enough probably to put on a practice match because um, he was obviously searching for um, players. It reminded me a bit, actually, when Bertie Vokes came into the Scotland squad and he was trying to look at all these players to think, well, can I unearth someone that um, has been overlooked, for example? Similar kind of traits to that, but obviously international level compared to, to domestic. So there was a, a period of kind of transition there that lasted probably longer. And the issue he also had was that by taking in these new players, there was an awful lot of players that were still on contracts that were not ready to move yet because they maybe didn't have something that they were that was a <laughs> So you then had a massively bloated squad. I think if I remember rightly, I mean, like Arl Stavram joined in the October, November, and Arl had squad number 47, I think it was at the time. Yeah. And this wasn't a kind of like, that was his preference. It was literally, that was the next number. Yeah. in the squad list. And I think it was Adel, or it might have been Ian Jess, I can't remember which one it was, that talked about this period as well, when, like you say, the kind of trial list just coming in left, right and centre, and there's even occasions where there's almost boys turning up and they're in the dressing room, almost just like with getting their towels and their, like, yeah. gear, and it's like, is that boy just rocked up to reception and just blagged his way in for a trial? Exactly. Yeah, he, he could have got away with that quite easily. Um, some would, would argue that maybe there were, <laughs> based on some of the, the quality... Um, but he did manage to get, I mean, if you think about the time, that was when Isham came in. Um, but there were so many of them. Patricio Bilio, um, Rashid, uh, Thomas, Cato Gunvait, um, Juan Cobian. For like, Juan was just there for, what, six months? Um, so well, you, you kind of, you honestly lose track. You think the amount of players that you've played with over your career, but that period there there were so many comings and goings um, and there was also like I say the squad of players that were no longer required surplus to requirements and that's difficult to manage that situation as well because you've got a group of players there that have basically been told you've got no future there so you're trying to get them out the door but it's not as easy as that. One of the players who would have been in that exact position at this point in time, and you'll have been through him through squads pretty much since you came in. It's Ilian Kiriakov. <laughs> yeah, sorry, um, I forgot about Ilian, yeah. You must have a story or two about Ilian Kiriakov for us. Yeah, um, is this a before or after the watershed? It's after watershed, you're all right. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I had a lot of time as a young boy for Ilian. He would... Um, he would always speak to you. He was good in the changing room. I mean, God, he, he liked a, a night out. And I think he was at that stage of his career where he was probably over the other side, shall we say, not in his prime. But you could see, um, even though we didn't get the best out of him, there was flashes there in training and games. You thought he, in his prime, he would have been a right good player. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I always remember, the alien used to have the big baths. Um, that Ted used to kind of um, fill. And you need, needed to start that a good hour before the players were finished in training. They've been done away with now for health and safety reasons. Probably one of those was Alien. As soon as Alien went in the bath, he'd be quite comfortable um, for a while. And as soon as he decided to leave, he would then get up, piss in the bath and then leave. So, <laughs> um, which anyone else in the bath then thought, well, 
it's that's it. <laughs> You're not going to hang about any longer. So that was his party trick for the deep, the, the plunge pool, plunge pool bass. But um, I mean, there was him, there was Zanko as well, actually, because Zanko signed just after Ilian. Yeah. So you think about those really experienced players in the changing round about that time. I think I think Arold described. Ilian at this point in the Scovedale era as being a guy who had retired but hadn't told anyone yet and he was just turning up to do his, to eat, basically have his lunch That's probably <laughs> fair <laughs> I think to be honest if you think about the the manager obviously it was Roy that signed Ilian and then there was Alec Miller and then Eb Scovedale and you're never actually sure if he's trying to mould his own team if there's certain players you would think straight away well maybe that's not what I'm looking for um, time to kind of go our separate ways so to speak and Alien definitely kind of fell into that category I would say As had been the case with the previous managers you're again a constant starter in, in Ebb's lineups as well um, of course that that 99-2000 season is infamous for all of the wrong reasons it takes us until mid-September to score a goal even end of October till we get that first win on the board, that incredible 6-5 win at Fir Park. Yeah. Just how difficult was that initial run? And what was Ebb like during that phase? Because he must have also been wondering, like, I mean, he's a experienced coach. He's won trophies galore in uh, Denmark. He's had a, a, an experience with Benfica as well at that point. He must have also been wondering, like, what the fuck's going on here? Like, Yeah, what have I done? <laughs> um, I mean, his I think his temperament never really changed, to be honest. Um, he was fairly I mean he could lose his temper now and again but generally speaking you would say he was fairly mild mannered so as much as the, the early start to that season got like it, it was it was embarrassing at one point um, he just stuck to the same routine he wouldn't um, overly criticise in such a way but some of the methods that he kind of tried to introduce um, I think What's the best way of putting it? Maybe he had a little bit of pushback from certain players because it was unusual in terms of some of what he was looking to do. I think some of it actually um, was okay. Others, I agree with some of the other players and I'm thinking, what are we doing here? But he was the manager when it came to training, for example. So some of the training drills, you might thought, well, this is unusual, shall we say. Is there any value to doing this? But he's the manager, he decides what you're actually doing in the training session, so you just have to get on with it. Um, but like I say, he was his temperament never really changed throughout the whole thing. Um, I think when we did actually get that first win, you could see the relief across everybody. Um, but I think a big part of that, like I say, he was searching for a team. Um, he was changing all these players behind the scenes, trying to find a team in the first game of the season with Celtic at home. So it was always going to be a difficult game, but we we weren't ready for that, I would suggest. Um, and it took a long time, actually, to to start putting some points on the board. Whilst at the same time, that season, we actually got to two cup finals. So um, it was, it was bizarre. It was, it was a season of extremes. A first goal as well for Aberdeen for you this season, 26th of February, 2000, a goal just before halftime against Hibs, converting a pass from Andy Dow. Yeah. A special moment in the Russell Anderson scrapbook? Yeah. Uh, I think we were 3-0 up at half-time that game. And when you think about the tough games we'd have earlier in that season, it was unusual. I mean, I can think the amount of times in my career that I've been 3-up at half-time, 
you could count on one hand at most, I would think, um, left foot. So that in itself was a massive surprise. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, it was a nice moment, to be honest. Um, we ended up winning the four, the game 4-0. So to get your first goal, um, win 4-0 at home against Hibs, yeah, it was a it was a good afternoon, and yeah, it was a great buzz. Um, when the it doesn't matter when you score first goal, I suppose maybe even more so at that point. But any goal that you scored, um, that you, you still got the same buzz from it. You just touched on it as well a minute ago. The um the cups are fruitful. That's fair to say. A League Cup quarter final win over Rangers, um, the win over Hibs and the Scottish Cup semi final are both memorable ones. You start both the cup finals. Obviously, the League Cup final handling at Celtic, it's a bit of a damp squibble around this one, but it's your first major cup final. Um, memories of that one, because you touched on earlier on, your first cup final you can remember as a fan was versus Celtic at the Old Hamden. So a special one to get the opportunity to play in a cup final for Aberdeen, I'd imagine. Yeah, it, it was. Um, and I think it, it was such a, like I say, it was a season of extremes. The league form had been that poor that when you actually realise, well, we're going to Hamden for a cup final here. It was a massive occasion anyway, but just when you compared it to some of the other um, the low points in that season, I think it was, um, yeah, it was, well, for me anyway, I think everyone that was involved in it, you were really looking forward to it. And you're right, it, it did end up being a bit of a damp squib. Um, we never really got an opportunity, um, even though you, we, we did okay, Doing okay is not enough to win a cup final um, against Celtic, and I think that was the, the really the the overriding feeling that um, we uh, we just didn't have enough um, to, to beat them. We didn't really create any opportunities that I could remember at the time. Um, and even though we competed, um, like I say, we weren't we weren't good enough to beat them on the day. Then, of course, there's the Scottish Cup final. Um, the game itself gets off to the worst possible start. Jim Leighton happened to be subbed off after just two minutes after having his uh, face smashed in by Rod Wallace. Robbie Winters has to step into sticks. Any danger that you were going to volunteer going goals? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I still can't actually quite believe that's how that game worked out because there was such a, a big focus on it for Jim. Um, and then within, what, two minutes, he's getting carted off and we're kind of looking about thinking... Um, what we're going to do um, and I I didn't even last till half time in that game either so the, the whole game was just from beginning to end it was a disaster um, for everybody at the club the team for Jim personally but for me as well um, that was the start of my knee problems that <laughs> plagued me for a good couple of seasons after that and for the rest of my career to be honest We'll come on to the injury for yourself in a second, but um, can you remember at which point it dawned on you that we didn't have a sub goalkeeper on the bench? <laughs> Straight away, because I knew. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking, well, the way that Jim had gone down, he was staying down, it was pretty clear um, straight away that he wasn't going to be able to continue. So then you're thinking, well, who is going to volunteer for it? And fair play to Bob. He stepped forward, um, looked like he was wearing his big brother's goalie top. However, um, yeah, it was. Everything that could have gone wrong that day did. Now, who knows how the game would have played out otherwise. You don't know, but it is what it is. From a player's perspective, Scottish Cup final, the, the showpiece event of the season, just how like deflating and disheartening a moment is that? Like When that, you know, two minutes in, and like you say, that's that realisation, we don't even have a subkeeper on the bench, and this is just, you know, 
it's only going to go one way at that point, isn't it? Realistically. Well, yeah, um, it's yeah, it is hugely deflating. There's no getting away from it. Um, and yeah, there's such a big build-up to it. You're thinking um, showcase occasion um, to go and put a performance in and, and win the cup, and then, like you say, within two minutes, it's all just come crashing down around you. Um, because I don't, don't care what you say. Um, with that happening, okay, if you've got a subkeeper on the bench, then not really much has changed, to be honest. Um, although you feel for Jim and what he had to go through, but as soon as that happened, you're just thinking, well, the odds are massively stacked against us now. And you just touched on it there. It's obviously not a great day for you on a personal level either, because you know you have to leave the pitch before halftime with an injury. Now, am I right in thinking that at the time it maybe wasn't quite clear just how serious that injury would become because you end up actually coming back in and playing a couple of preseason games for the following yeah. season and it's I think it was a game in Inverness wasn't it that yeah where you've you had to go your, you've done your research yeah um it was exactly that um basically the injury kind of carried over close season into pre-season so whilst everyone else was doing their proper pre-season I was still getting treatment trying to involve myself to an extent because if you ask any player the one thing they don't want to miss is pre-season because you end up then playing catch-up. Um, so it, you were trying to do as much as you could in terms of maybe some of the straight line running, but the twisting and turning, the the game-related stuff, just couldn't do it straight away. Um, but then I got gradually reintroduced back into it, played up at Inverness and clearly wasn't quite ready for it. And Landed awkwardly, twisted my knee even worse. Um, and that was really the, well, the, the starting point was the cup final. That compounded things. And then after that, it was just, um, it was, yeah, one thing after another. You miss basically a year of football at that point. And I guess, you know, injuries, you know, they're, they're part and parcel of the game. You know, they, they happen and it's very, it's, it's very infrequent. You see players who go through an entire career without some sort of injury that comes to the fore. But, you know, you'd had a pretty much uninterrupted run of first-team football since you came into the team. Yeah. How frustrating was that for you and, and just to deal with, not just on a kind of a physical level, but on a mental level as well? Well, there's a lot that goes with it because at that point there, I remember the first cup final was about two weeks after I'd had my first son. So, you're th- I mean, that part of it was actually really good part of my life. But then... You fast forward maybe five or six months later, you've been told you're going to need a, an operation, maybe two, uh, to repair your, your cruciate ligament. And you're thinking, well, you've been told he could be out here for a year, possibly 18 months. So when it starts to kind of look at that length of time before you could be back, th- there are quite a few things that start going through your mind. You have to be positive and try and get back because there's no other way for it. But um I'd be lying if I didn't say there were a couple of low moments there because I, I did need to get more than one operation on it. That you're thinking, am I actually going to be able to come back from this um, at all? And then when you've got a family to support at the same time, it's the other side to it in terms of football that maybe a lot of people don't understand and recognise that they see what goes on on a Saturday, three till five o'clock. There's an awful lot that goes on behind the scenes for players personally if it comes to injuries, for example, that you've kind of got to deal with that. And a lot of the time you are kind of left to your, not to your own devices, but it's down to the way that you handle injuries in terms of how quickly you'll come back, how strong you'll come back, um, how much of an impact it will have on you mentally, but also physically. So 
I had plenty of practice at it. <laughs> when you um, do eventually get back into the team, Ebbs at this point kind of, I think, started to get a bit of a better balance, I think, in terms of how he's making up his squad, making up his team. He's really started to blood some of the younger lads coming through. It always looked to me that there was maybe a little bit of a better integration between the young boys coming in, some of the lads that he'd taken in as well from from further afield. It must be quite a fun dressing to be part of back then with the likes of, I guess, like Ryan S and Kevin McNaughton. You've got the young brothers, Darren Mackey, all regulars in the team at that point as well. Yeah, and they were all players that had come through the, um, the youth team with you. Um, so it was nice to see so many of them in the changing room and playing regularly or being involved regularly. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think it definitely helped uh, the changing room in terms of the team spirit. Because um, you're right, there were still some players from further afield that kind of made up that squad. So I think it was actually a good blend. And it was more probably what the manager had in mind. It just took him a while to get there because he had to go through quite a lot of pain and then start blooding some of the younger players to, to get uh, to where he this that team kind of ended up. And after you kind of bed yourself in, get back into the team after that spell out, you, you come at a side that's in good form, and um, particularly at home. There's a 2 0 win over Celtic at Pataudry just before Christmas um, that seals a run of nine home wins in a row. A memorable one for everybody involved, I think. Were you involved in the, the Conga train at the end? I can't remember. No, if, you, if there's any footage of it, I'm standing about two yards to the right looking at them thinking I'm not getting involved in that. <laughs> uh, and I'm so glad. I'm looking back now and think I'm glad I wasn't. Obviously, we go on that season to secure fourth. A return to European football, uh, you must have been really looking forward to, I guess, at that point, or getting a chance to kind of test yourself on the European stage because you'd have missed out on the, well, I'll say you miss out. Maybe it's not a bad thing to miss out on the Bohemians match. Um, but a good opportunity to get back on European football, I guess, and, and for you to test yourself on that stage. Yeah, it was. Was that my first taste of it? I think it must have been. Um, must have been, yeah. So it was. It was. It, it, I think it's always the same European football at the start of every season. The, the, the players obviously love it. I think the fans really take to it because there's a freshness to it, depending on the teams that you're playing against. And if you can start the season with some good wins in Europe, then it sets you up hopefully nicely for the domestic campaign. So, uh, I mean, I don't think you can underplay the importance of um, having European games to start your season. And yeah, any time that you played in Europe, I remember that season, it was Moldova that we played, wasn't it? Yeah, Nistru Atachi. Yeah, glad you could say it because I couldn't pronounce it. Um, and we managed to get through 1-0, um, which then, did we go straight into playing Hertha after yeah, that? Yeah, straight through. Yeah. Um, so it was a big jump in terms of the quality from playing the Moldovan team to uh, Hertha Berlin. And I remember the game kicked off five o'clock, didn't it, for German TV. Um, and we drew 0-0 with them and I thought we were actually comfortable we didn't really cause them any problems going the other way. But likewise, I never felt under a huge amount of pressure defensively against that uh, team. So you were going over there thinking, genuinely thought we actually had a chance of um, of uh, doing something. Um, and the way the game played out, it was just really frustrating that we weren't so close. I think I had a, had a cleared off the line with a couple of minutes to go. And then they go up the park the other end and, and score basically as good as the last kick of the ball. But in between then, they'd had somebody sent off. The referee then decided to even up things by se sending off Eric, the LMO. Um, and when they went down to 10 men for that short period, you think, well, we've got a right chance of going on to win this. So 
there was a massive feeling of frustration um, at the end of that game because I think, well, I certainly felt, and I think the rest of them did as well, that it was a missed opportunity. Yeah, I still remember your header getting cleared off the line because we were, because it happened at the end where the Aberdeen fans were in. Um, and yeah, it was that moment of like, if that's in, like, we're, th- we're through because there's no way they were going up the park and scoring two goals. And for them to get that last minute, it was just, it felt like such a, a, a completely typical <laughs> Scottish performance, whether it's on an international scene or, or Scottish teams in Europe that so close and yet yeah. so far. But I think for everybody that was involved um, in that trip, from a supporter's perspective, it was an absolute belter. And uh, all I need to say to anybody who is listening who remembers it is Neil Simpson in the Europa Bar the night before the game um, was certainly memorable for a whole number of different <laughs> for different reasons. October 2002 also sees you make your debut for the national team. Um, yeah. So obviously you played it on a 21 and B international level, come off the bench in Iceland, uh, Euro 2004 qualifier again. So, you know, you've, you've kind of come through the, the, the age groups there. Um, but again, having had that injury just the season before, that must have just been a really special moment to know you've kind of got to that to that level of recognition. Yeah, I think it was actually the night of the the Hertha Berlin game that I was told that I made the squad. So it was it was one of those nights where you're obviously gutted that you've just been knocked out, but then you've been given the news that you're away to be called up for the the national team. Um, so that I suppose kind of softened the blow a little bit, and it was it was like it's a great feeling. Um, the game itself, my my debut, I sat on the touchline for about three or four minutes waiting to get on because the ball would not go out of play. Um, and I, I did think at one point, this ball's not going to go out. The referee's going to blow full time and I'm not going to get my cap here. Um, I got on, didn't touch the ball at all. Uh, and I, we won 2-0. I think Gary Naismith stuck one in the top corner with his right foot, if, um, uh, if memory serves me correct. So it was, I mean, it was a, a, a great occasion for the fact that I'd made my debut. But in terms of the actual game and the the impact I had on it, it was absolutely zero. Clean sheet, though. <laughs> I went on as a defensive midfielder. So there we go. It's fine. All good. That tells you everything you need to know. I mean, it's it's one of these weird ones as well for Aberdeen because the season it just doesn't really pan out the way that I think anyone's hoping. I I, I almost feel so actually the the way that we lost in Germany kind of cast a bit of a shadow and a bit of a hangover for everybody involved with it because we we came so close. There's a 1-1 draw at Tanadice, which proves to be Ebb's final game in charge because he'd announced he was going to step down. I mean, obviously Ebb had come in and the initial season in particular had been, you know, not great. But then it kind of felt like he'd really started to develop something and, and kind of get it going. Was that a bit of a, was that a sad moment for a lot of the guys in the dressing when, when he did step away? Because I always feel, and I'm probably wrong about this, but I always felt like Ebb had this aura of like a kind of genial uncle. And it was yeah. all, the young ba- all the young boys in the squad as well. and. It just felt like it was a bit of a, I don't know, just felt a bit odd when he decided he was going. I think if you rewind to that first season and when things were as bad as they were, you probably wouldn't have thought that he would have lasted as long as he did, to be honest. <laughs> but you're right, he did kind of turn it round and there was a lot of um, pain to get there, like I say. Um, so it was it was one of those then when he did eventually decide to kind of step down, I think there was part of you... Were you really surprised? I was probably, to be honest. And I think some of the players were were as well because we had made improvements. Um, but I, I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of things you can 
kind of look back at Ebb's time in charge, his sayings, his, um, <laughs> all the different quotes that he came out with. Um, he was certainly different, I'll put it that way. Absolutely. Steve Patterson, Duncan Shearer, they're appointed now to take charge of the side. Um, your initial impressions of, of the new management team? Again, very different to who was um, being replaced. You look at Ebb and then you look at Pelly coming in. Um, to- two totally different types of characters, different careers. Um, I'm, well, you know for a fact that the, the budget um, that Ebb had to spend was very different with Steve Patterson coming in. I think that was around about the time where clubs started to kind of realise that they were going to have to tighten their belts. So it was a very different kind of proposition, I think, that Steve was being given compared to the previous regime. Um, I mean, I mean, it's well documented what happened with Pelly. Um, I've got a lot of time for him. Um, I think we we did underachieve. There's no getting away from that. I think that the challenges that Pelly faced at that time, um, I think we all kind of felt them, to be honest, because after that the game that he missed, um, he wasn't the same person. Um, he was still there, but it just, to me, it felt like he he had this pressure on him even more so. The spotlight was on him. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they were cutting the budget fairly significantly. So again, same thing we're talking about. Ebby's players start to then leave because Steve Patterson comes in. He wants his own type of player. The budget's obviously different to what it was under Ebb. Um, so... Again, it was a massive change, um, turnover of players, and it does take time. There's no getting away from that. So I, it, you shouldn't be surprised when you see managers coming in, um, players kind of moving on, and the team takes a while to gel, to be honest. And it all comes down to recruitment. And I think we've seen that over the last few seasons now. Mm-hmm. Recruitment is one of the, well, if not the most important thing. You just touched on it. Briefly, and I'd like to quickly have a look at it again. Um, there's that the, the Dundee game that, that Steve Patterson misses. Um, now, this happens just a couple of months into him being in charge at Pataudry as well, which I'd actually forgotten it was as soon as that. Um, now, you weren't in the squad that day, I don't think. but I was suspended for that game, so I was up doing the corporate hospitality. I was sitting with the sponsors like you had to do back then. Somebody would have to go and host the sponsors and dine with the game. So what was going on downstairs, I was oblivious to it at the time. What does that do to like the way that the squad views a manager, though, when something like that happens? Because I can't think of another example of anything like this ever happening, you know? Yeah. Does that almost put him on a back foot as well with the squad to an extent? Yeah. Um, I'd be lying if I was sitting here and saying no. I, I think we'd been through, in my time, so many different kind of Managers coming and going, um, but this was obviously something different to anyone had had to contend with before. And I think even the, the club, the board, the chairman were probably thinking, how are we going to handle this? Because never been faced with it before. Um, I think they obviously backed him and supported him, and it was the right thing to do. But like I say, looking at it now, and even at the time, you could tell that he changed after that event because it, it right. just felt as if yeah the spotlight was on him all the time and people were watching and I guess that's part of the thing I think I've heard people talk about this before with Steve Patterson as well and um I think maybe I've heard you talk about it before as well previously you know it's just that I think sometimes people don't understand the kind of goldfish bowl that Aberdeen 
the city and the football club in particular are um, and just how high profile the role can be compared to other clubs in the country. It almost becomes the Glasgow 2-esque, I think, from that perspective. I think there's there's a lot to be said for being a one-club city. There's there's a positive side to it. Um, and when things are going well, there is, there's nowhere better to play your football. But if, the th- if things aren't going so well, then you are right in the spotlight because there's no one else to take that pressure off you. Um, and as the, the manager, you can only imagine that everyone kind of looks at you. Um, the players as well, so to speak. But there, there is, there's no escape from it. Yeah. I think you definitely, I think some people are surprised when they come up here and don't realise the level of expectation um, that's placed on you. And I think that's, I don't think that's a bad thing because it kind of, you would like to think it, it drives players and managers on to um, to be the best that they can be. But um, sometimes it can actually have a, a negative effect on, on people. And I think um, that looking at what, what happened uh, with Pelly? Um, it, it was it was difficult for him. Yeah, I think it takes a special type of character, doesn't it? I think to to be able to deal with that, not just on the managerial side, but on a player side as well. Because you've seen it, you know, how many times have you seen players who've done really really well at other clubs and they come up to Aberdeen, it just doesn't work out for them for some reason. And I do wonder how much of that is down to that kind of goldfish bowl, the one club city thing, you know. It's difficult to quantify, but I definitely think it has it, it has affected some players over the years. Um, that have done really well at supposedly smaller clubs. And then they are, at the time, genuinely, hunters are, will look at them and think, well, yeah, that genuinely looks like a, a good signing and it doesn't work out. Um, and then you have to take a step back and think, why? And that I think that is part of it. Patterson and Shearer come in, they steer the Dons up to an eighth place finish eventually, but you, you touched on a minute ago, that close season in particular sees a lot of change again. You can see the budgets are starting to be slashed. Um, likes of Darren Young and Derek Young have gone uh, to Dunfermline. Stephen Duncan are being charged with, you know, trying to bring the, the club's finances under control. So there's a big reliance again on young players and also players kind of coming in from the lower leagues. Um, and they find a few gems in there, you know, like Steve Tosh, Paul Sheeran does excellent for the short period of time that he was kind of uh, in the first team. Um, but for you, with Dan and Young leaving, there comes the opportunity because you're made a club captain ahead of that campaign. So how did you find out that you were going to be made captain and did you feel it was something you were ready to take on? In hindsight, was I ready? I'm not sure if you ever are to be captain first time. I think from the time that I started to, until the time that I, I, I retired, I would say I learned an awful lot and I was a very different captain by the end. Um, but I think that comes from experience. I'm sure there probably were a few people that questioned that decision at the time, both internally and externally, because you're you're thinking, right, you, you've got to get the respect of the players in the changing room, not just as a player, but um, as a captain as well. So I kind of felt that, um, I suppose, being as a local boy as well, there probably would be more scrutiny on if the team's not doing well, there's even more responsibility on me um, as being being the captain. I would say that probably the fairest way to put it, the best way to put it, I grew into it, I would say. As it was that that following season, it's a hard one all round. We eventually finished uh, in 11th spot, eight points clear to Park Thistle, who were bottom of the pile. There's a run of five straight defeats in the split, which I think really just piles the pressure on to, to, to Steve Patterson and Duncan Shearer um, just a few days after the season finishes up. Um, Willie Miller comes back and is director of football. Steve Patterson and Duncan Shearer depart. 
and then Jimmy Caldwood and Jimmy Nicol are lured from Dunfermline. Um, in terms of the news about Stephen Duncan, like we surprised by that at the time. I mean, given the way the results had kind of worked out, it's probably not that big a, a shock, I'd imagine. No, I, I don't think it was. I think the, the, the point I was making was that nothing had really surprised me at that point because we'd been through so much over that short period of time that when you got the call, because it was actually the close season when it happened, um, you got the call from local journalists to say, actually, that they're going to be making a change. Willie Miller was coming in um, and Willie was going to be appointing Jimmy Calderwood, Jimmy Nicol as manager. So I wasn't surprised um, as such, like I say, just because of we almost got kind of used to it, which is a, a pretty embarrassing thing to say. Um, and then, obviously, again, a very different character in terms of Jimmy Calderwood coming in and replacing Steve. I was a way to say, I mean, Jimmy's got a reputation of being a pretty positive guy. Let's put it that way. He's quite polite. And that must have seemed like a bit of a breath of fresh air for, I guess, someone like yourself who'd been now through the squad, through, you know, Roy Aitken, Alex Miller, Paul Hegarty, Episcope, Dallas, Steve Patterson, none of whom necessarily jump out at you as being the most positive individuals. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I think Jimmy did have, um, he had an infectious personality and I think that kind of um, shone through in the way that he wanted his teams to play. Um, and I think it did rub off throughout the club. I think the previous season had finished on such a low point. I think having somebody with that personality to come in that was almost bigger than the club, I think certainly helped um, and it rubbed off not only, I think, on the players, but even behind the the scenes as well um, for the staff. So, I mean, we, we managed, you talk about, I've already said it can take time for things to turn around, but I think that what Jimmy did really well that summertime was he recruited really well and signed three or four boys that basically went straight in the spine of the team and, um, and along with that, there were some good players that we had there anyway that I think just needed to refine their form and their confidence. Um, and he managed to turn it around pretty quickly. But again, the pendulum swung again. All of a sudden, he was getting more money to spend compared to what Steve Patterson was. So the types of players that he was able to attract, Steve would never have been able to do that because they didn't have the budget. Mm -hmm. So it's timing, a lot of it. One of the guys that do join that summer is Scott Severin, which was a massive coup at the time it felt as well, because obviously he was leaving Hearts, who were, you know, up up at the top end of the table. I think there was a lot of talk at the time he might have been looking at going um down south potentially. How big a signing jink that actually was in terms of Scott Severin coming in? I didn't realise it at the time. Uh, I did soon afterwards. Like uh, um, I knew Sevy was a good player, but I didn't realise until he actually came in how good he was and how much he actually brought to the changing room and just more generally. Um, and I thought, yeah, <laughs> I sound like I'm milking it here and just um, repeating the same line, but the recruitment of Seve and Basnick, um, Steve Lovell, um, off the top of my head, um, Jamie Smith, all went into the first team and all made a huge difference. But Seve was huge um, when he when he first signed he was influential like I say on the pitch um, and he was confident to go and get on the ball um, and try and dictate play um, but even off the pitch as well he was a good person to have in the changing room First day of pre-season under the two Jimmies um, 
and Sandy Clark, of course, who would have been part of the coaching team as well. First impressions of the new regime and just how magnificent was Jimmy's tan on day one? <laughs> Same colour as the changing room door. <laughs> and if you've been in the changing room at Pataudry, you'll know the colour of it. Um, it's funny because I heard, and I think it probably is true, that, that the Dunfermline team that Jimmy had left, obviously they've been doing quite well. It's Scott Wilson and who was the other centre-half? Oh, I'm going to have to Google them. Lithuanian boy. Can't wow. remember. Anyway, the rumour is that he tried to sign one or both of them. I can't remember which one, and it never happened. So clearly he'd looked at the team and thought, we need better players in, in, in positions. And I'm stupid enough to think that we'd had a period of underperformance. So it's like when any manager comes in, they're basically it's a clean slate, but you've got to go and prove yourself. Um I mean, it's yeah. The, the way that he approached training and games and everything, it pretty soon rubbed off on everybody. Um, and I think it turned the the momentum and the I suppose the the feeling within the club pretty quickly. Was it the boy Skirla? Uh Yeah, I think that's yeah, it. That's the one. There we go. On that, I mean, obviously, your club captain when he comes in, did he kind of take you to the side at the start of that kind of preseason and kind of give you a bit of a feel for what he was aiming for? You know going to keep you on as club captain because these are all decisions that a new manager has to make when he comes in yeah not that I can remember so he was probably still sounding everybody out and I would have been included in that so I mean who knows if he'd been successful signing somebody at centre half <laughs> all if buts and maybes but no I can't remember him taking me aside and 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 having a word Season gets off to a good start, unbeaten in our opening seven games in all competitions, which just builds that momentum, doesn't it, after the way that the previous campaign had finished up. Um, we end up finishing fourth that season, only just missing out on a return to Europe on goal difference to Hibs. A huge improvement in that first season, and then that close season is the one that sees Jimmy get a wee bit more cash to spend as well. That's where the likes of Barry Nicholson, Stevie Lovell, Jamie Smith come in. I mean, there must have been at that point going into that season there and, and maybe for the first time, potentially in your Aberdeen career, a general feeling of we could maybe do something special with this group of players now, this campaign. Yeah, I think um, it was off the back of our first really positive season for quite a while. Um, and it, like, I think, it, as I've always said, that just goes to show it doesn't take an awful lot to get the supporters back um, really buying into what the team's doing and that season I think went a long way towards that for the following season um, and you were just looking to try and build on that momentum like you say and, and take it forward because we did feel a little bit that you'd missed out in terms of third place it was maybe I remember Jimmy always used to do this exercise in pre-season he would give you the fixtures after they were out and he would say right look at all the fixtures and tell me how many points that we're going to win in the season. So you had to put points against every team, every game. And um, it was a it was a good exercise for people actually looking at the games and thinking, well, why can't we win that game? I think Michael Hart had us winning the league with 106 points. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, and it was, I thought it was actually a quite a good exercise for getting the players to think positively about, well, okay, you're not going to win all of your games, but why can't you look at that game, for example? And we, why can't we go to Easter Road, for example, and beat Hibs or whatever for that matter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were going into that following season in a pretty positive frame of mind um, because you did feel like we'd, we'd come just short in terms of finishing third 
And remember, that was at the time where the Hearts was at the Hibs team was um, pretty strong, I think, if I yeah. remember correctly. That second campaign for Jimmy is a bit of an odd one because there's opening day defeat at home to Kilmarnock. Then there's the 3-2 win against Rangers at Pataudry. Um, you get the opener together with a hoof to the head in the process for that one. Um, a special moment to score against Rangers at the... I was going to say the Merkland. It is the Merkland end. The red shed end, as it is now. I always... You, I mean, like I say, you love scoring any goal against any team, but especially against the old firm, and I would say especially against Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah we, we managed to win that. I do remember that season that we didn't start it particularly well so we ended up trying to play catch up for a big part of it because we had a, a poorer start to it and then you ended up like I say looking at the gap between you and where you wanted to be where we were last season so it was a little bit underwhelming I would have said off the back of the, the previous season where we'd started so strongly and that then gave you a platform and a little bit of breathing space. If you did maybe have a bad result, um, you still had a cushion there and a, and a gap between the clubs below you. Whereas that second season, we, did, we didn't we did get off to such a good start. So like I say, we were almost trying to play catch up. And and the season kind of just goes that way. It's a bit up and down. Um, we eventually finish up in sixth spot, which seems like a real underachievement with the number of, with the quality that was in that squad at that moment in time. But, the end of that season, it's not straight off to holiday time for you because you have to travel to Japan with Scotland um, as part of the famous Kirin Cup winning squad, a 5-1 yeah. win over Bulgaria, a 0-0 draw with Japan sees us take the trophy. Surely just an experience in and of itself, I imagine, that one. Oh, it was, it was as experienced as go. You think, well, would you ever go to Japan? Um, not sure. I'd like to go again, having experienced it, but... I remember it because the Scottish Cup was coming up, so none of the Celtic or the Rangers games were, sorry, players were involved in the squad. So it was, to all intents and purposes, a bit of a B squad. Um, but the the whole experience was was really good. It was obviously after the, um, was it before or after the Japan and South Korea World Cup? Anyway, the stadiums were ready. I'm sure it was after it. So they they built the stadiums, and the stadiums that we played in were excellent um, and the, the games themselves the Bulgaria game we won it comfortably I think Chris Boyd scored a hat-trick that, that, that night it was a very low crowd given the fact that okay, we had a handful of Tartan Army punters came over I'm not even sure how many Bulgaria brought to the party but then the, the game against Japan it was sold out um, and we were up against it basically for the full 90 minutes but managed to get a nil-nil so therefore we won the, the tournament in goal difference so it was a really good way to finish the season to be honest I enjoyed it, loved it well, There's not too many players who've played for Scotland who've come home with a winner's medal from any tournament so you know there we go Yeah <laughs> I never actually thought about it before we went in terms of all, well you could come back with a winner's medal but it was just it was another cap, um, another squad you were involved in, and it actually ended up being really enjoyable. Going into that following season with Aberdeen, I'm presuming that there must have been a real determination, not just within the squad, but also within the management team, about to really kind of show what this squad could do. Yeah, definitely. And and that season, from a squad perspective, but I also think one individually for yourself as well. It, like on an individual level for you, I think this was the season where you really cemented yourself as being one of the very best centre halves in the country. There is, of course, that iconic moment—the tackle on Thomas Gravison at Pataudry. Um, 
can you remember much about that moment? Because it's the moment that everybody remembers from that initial point of that season. There's such great images of it. It was his debut, I think, as well, wasn't it? It was a proper, like, and welcome to Scottish enough, football moment. That was Satanta were doing the TV now. Um, and Gravison had just signed. And they ended up giving him... Because I remember Boothie told me this. They, um, they gave him Man of the Match so they could inter- interview him afterwards because otherwise they wouldn't have got a chance to speak to him. Don't remember much. I mean, I've seen it plenty of times since, to be honest. It, it was just one of those things that kind of develops in in the course of a game. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the timing probably just was, I don't know. It was just one of those things that just the way that it played out in the game. Um, so you're right, though, that season, I think there was definitely a feeling of wanting to kind of get back to the previous um, season before because we probably felt like we had underachieved a little bit um, in that that, that season um, just before. It's an interesting one again and and this is something that happens quite frequently with with Jimmy unfortunately. It's probably one of the only the, the black mark you'll always have against Jimmy's reign at Pathology was the cup form was, was poor this season then. Yeah. Knocked out of penalties at Firhill by Queen's Park. I think Darren Mackey's attempt from that shootout still orbiting the earth potentially and then Dumped out the Scottish Cup at the third round stage, a 4-1 defeat and a replay against Hibs. But then we go on this brilliant run from March onwards. We only lose three games in the league at our final 11. There's that massive 1-1 draw at Tynecastle, which Barry yeah. Nichols has got the last minute equalised. I think you miss out on that one as well, but I'm assuming that Barry must have ended up getting some amount of stick off of not just the two Jimmys, but the rest of the dressing room for A, descending off, and B, for that horrendous little tighty whitey vest he was wearing. Ah, uh, yeah. But has never spent much time in the gym, so <laughs> it would have kept his top on. To be honest, I think maybe in hindsight, if he could do it again, he would. But that was that was massive. That I think I was suspended for that game. Actually, I was down doing the TV for it, so I remember being in the corner, um, in the TV studio, um, and it it was huge. I can't think where Hearts were in relation to us in the league, but I just remember thinking. That is that's massive that goal for us, um, and that was probably I know we had to beat Rangers in the last game of the season, but um, that was probably the, the goal that um, got us to it. I would have said. Yeah, I think from recollection that meant that we were at least four points ahead for the following. We, we were going to Parkhead the week after, I think. So you were kind of in like right. Well, you, as a fan, I remember being like you kind of write that off. It becomes then a at best will be a point ahead of hearts going into the last game and you win and it's in your hands. Brilliant. And as we just touched on, it sets up that final day shootout with Rangers at Pataudry in the May sunshine. Um, yeah. A phenomenal strike by Scotty Severin gets us up and running. A really, really, really good goal by Stevie Lovell seals the oh, points. Yeah. A return to Europe. A phenomenal atmosphere at Pataudry that afternoon. Where does I'm interested in this one. Where does that one rank in kind of your favourite Aberdeen performances that you've you've been involved in? I think it's it's definitely up there. It would be probably top five, definitely. And I would say that because of what was at stake um, and the opposition and, you know, the pressure was on you to actually win. Now, you could argue Rangers didn't have anything to play for, um, but at the end of the day, we still had to go out and beat them and we did it comfortably. Um I thought we were in control for most yeah. as soon as Sebi's goal went in. I thought we were in control of that game. And then Steve's uh, finish as well was just a, a reminder of like how he, how good he could be for us. Um, so it was two very well-worked goals. Um, 
to score those goals in a game like that. I think, yeah, by the end of the game, you thought we, we've deserved to do this today, but also over the course of the season, I thought. And it was great as well. It was proper good celebrations after the game round Pataudry. Um But of course, this turns out to be your last appearance for the club in your first spell, and we'll come on to your second spell in the next part. But coming towards the end of that season, had you kind of already been thinking that, you know, maybe it's time to move on to try and do something different. I mean, at that point, you'd be 28. So you'd been with the club since you were 16. Yeah. Type of freshen things up a little bit. Well, if I'm being honest, no. <laughs> um, it was very much a case that it was um, broached by the club in terms of my contract was coming to an end and they were cutting back and they didn't feel that they could offer me a contract. So rather than letting me go for nothing, the plan was to try and sell me going into the well, another season to, to go before, obviously, I could walk away for, away for nothing. So we just moved house not that long before. We'd already been thinking about the kids going to school and everything. So to all intents and purposes, I was of the opinion that I was going to be at Aberdeen for my career, because like you say, I'd been there from 16 to 28. So I thought, well, I'm loving it under Jimmy Calderwood. We've got a good team, we're playing well. So that wasn't really on the radar for me until they made that call and told me that obviously they had different ideas. So it was a bit of a surprise, to be honest, but it's just something that you had to get your head around and it's football at the end of the day. Was that a bit weird though? Like, to get that kind of news, you know, that, and this is, this will be the weird thing about being a footballer, I guess, is that you're, I wasn't going to say you're not necessarily fully in control of your career, but to an extent, you're kind of not. You're not. And I think a big part of it is that you'll get some players that will move on. They'll, they'll spend a career moving about because they don't want to be anywhere for longer than two, three years. I've played with plenty of players. It's like, oh, they see it as an adventure as much as anything. I'll go here for two or three years. We'll go somewhere else. We'll go here. We'll go there. Um, Obviously, that was the total opposite to what my career had been up to that point. And like I say, I was really enjoying it. So um, a lot of the time, okay, supporters might think that you are in control of it and there's no getting away that you can control it to an extent. And I think that power has definitely shifted uh, in favour of players at the top end because they can control it. Mm -hmm. But further down the leagues, it's as much about the clubs controlling it as the players. And a lot of the time... Um, the, the clubs will determine who stays and who goes. Um, and that was just another example of it. It's Sunderland who you end up making the move to. Um, Roy Keane, manager there, had just did, had been promoted um, from the Championship up to the Premier League. How, how did that move come about? And was there kind of anyone else sniffing around at the time that you got close to signing for? Yeah, well, there, there was. Norwich had made an offer and it had been knocked back. Um, Sunderland were the first club that came in and actually made a bid that was accepted. Um, I was on holiday at the time, um, got a phone call from my agent to say that the bid had been accepted, but there was no hurry. So just enjoy the rest of your holiday. And then when you come back, um, we'll, we'll pick things up. So when I went back, they'd agreed all that side of it in terms of the two clubs. I then had to go down to Sunderland and do a medical and then talk about the other side of it in terms of the contract and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was, it's funny because... Um, there, I've had a couple of people that say to me that the house that we just moved into, it was part of a new street and there was people working on the other houses. They saw me leaving 
like eight o'clock in the morning. And it wasn't until afterwards I saw, we, we knew that you were going somewhere because we clocked you coming out of your house in a suit eight o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the um, the close season, as if to say, well, what else would you be doing that for? Um, so we kind of agreed everything. Medical actually took a little bit longer than I'd hoped because there was something that got flagged up, but um, the physios passed it, which was fine. Um, and then that was you, basically a Sunderland player for, well, for a three-year contract. When the club, when Aberdeen had said to you, look, the, the plan will be to try and sell you um, in, in this window, had you at that point had any kind of, you know, what were your kind of thoughts about where you might look to try and aim to end up at? I mean, like I say, Sunderland has been promoted to the Premier League. You know, it's the, in inverted commas, the, the greatest league in the world. It comes with all the publicity. Like that in itself must have been a bit of a kind of, if you're going to move, that seems like the, the, the place to be. Yeah, and I think that's what the, the club's position on it as well is that even though I knew what the, the rationale behind it was, and you couldn't really argue with that given how much money the, the club was in debt, um, they were also looking at it thinking, well, you get an opportunity hopefully to go and play in, in the Premier League and test yourself there. So there had been over the course of that season quite a few clubs that had shown an interest and they'd been up watching me, that kind of stuff. And those kind of clubs, you were looking at them thinking, well, yeah, could, would that be something that would be appealing and enticing? And there was there was a few. Um, so for them then to come in Sunderland and they'd just been promoted, you're thinking, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's like a lot of the the um, players that will move about, they'll end up at a club, for example. I had no ties to Sunderland, hadn't followed them at all, so knew very little of the club. And you, you'll find that with a lot of players that move about. So you then quickly have to go and start learning a bit about the history and everything that, that goes with it. So you're kind of, um, I suppose, armed with what you need to, uh, to go into a new club and buy into it. Um, and you kind of soon realised when you went down there the size and the scale of the club. It's huge. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And we'll we'll come to talk about your time down south um, in the next part, Russell, if that's all right. But um, just to wrap up this 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 part, I mean, was it a wrench for you to leave the club where, you know, it's your boyhood team, club captain, um, you know, 328 appearances, 19 goals under your belt. Was it a wrench to, to leave that first time? I think it, it was. I think um, it wasn't just me, it was family as well. So we all up sticks and moved. The kids um, were going to have to find a new school. My wife was going to have to start a new life as well. So it wasn't just about the football. It was everything else that went with that, which is what you'll find like with every footballer that has to move. There's, there's everything on top of um, fitting into a new changing room and trying to prove yourself. Um, that has to go with um, trying to build a new life for yourself with your family if they come with you. So, yeah, um, I think it, it is a wrench, but uh, we can speak about what happened uh, next. But in terms of the actual move itself, it was really good for us as a family. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think you'd be back at Aberdeen? I think the way that I left, I think the door was always open. But who knows? Um, I wasn't sitting there thinking... Um, I'm sure I'll be back at some point because you just don't know how things are going to play out. But I did like to, I, I did feel that because of the way things had been handled and the way I'd left, that that door was open if um, circumstances dictated that there was an opportunity to go back in the future. 
Spoiler alert, you, you absolutely did, but um, we'll talk about that in part two. Russell Anderson, it's been a privilege getting to talk to you um, this evening for the ABC Football Podcast. Stand free. Part two to come. And that does wrap up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please remember to like, subscribe, follow, or whatever you do on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week for episode 101. We will preview our first post-split fixture once we see what nonsense Neil Doncaster and Cole get up to. And we'll bring you part two of our chat with Russell Anson. And if you are very, very well behaved, there might be a little something that comes before that as well. Look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you in association with Siberia Bar and Hotel on Belmont Street, Aberdeen. Head into the bar, quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pint of Foster's, £4 pint of Moretti or £5 pint of Fierce any day of the week, including match days. Siberia is open seven days a week, all year round, and the bar is located only 30 seconds walk from the nearest bus stop taking supporters to Stadium for free on match days. Come on you Reds!